0: Previously on Deep Cuts. Hello, listeners of Hillsborough's Pirate Radio Station. We're here, where we're investigating a mysterious new theme park that has seemingly materialized out of thin
1: air. My name is Papas von Buesenbach. Come, gentlemen, let me show you my park. But this isn't why I brought you
2: here today. It's not? No, it's not. This is really not good. For all we know, we're locked in a prison of our minds right now.
3: Charles
1: Wexler Weller.
4: <laughs> I see you've met my new super villain team up, BFF forever, Baron Papa's Von Musenburg.
1: My heart is fueled by a pocket dimension the size of a <clears throat> pin's head. I'm I'm getting sucked into some sort of p- pocket dimension. No. Well,
4: <laughs> <clears throat> if you're gonna take my friends, then killing you is too good.
0: I'm going to make you suffer by taking yours. Oh, fuck. Get your hands off me.
2: What do we do now? We get Hillsmer back? I guess. Why do we even want to do that? Do we want to do that? No, we should probably get we
1: him back. We should probably get him back. I know who can accomplish this. I have a plan.
3: Is Hillsborough,
1: Hillsborough going to survive this cliffhanger?
3: All is going to plan, dear listener. The bad devoted eye fisher makes his cast. The ripples in the water like winking eyes within eyes until the gaze of the stream is all-consuming.
5: Dave, what are you doing? Huh? What? Oh, yeah, um, for some reason I'm back on this, like, Choochie Woochie World's Greatest Boy Detective kick. I'm just so obsessed with Choochie's original stuntman. He's so agile. Look at the way he's running. It's like he's, it's like he's hopping, but with one leg, but with two legs. What?
2: What does that even mean? No, remember? We're supposed to be meeting Zero right now so we can go over his plan to rescue Hillsmer from our mortal enemy, Charles Wexler Weller? Oh, shit, yeah, I
5: totally forgot about that. How? It literally happened, like, yesterday. Yeah, well, Marvin Turtle Puncher won the National Bungee Ball Champion Cup yesterday. Am I supposed to remember that, too? No one would expect you to remember that because it didn't happen to you, and also
2: you did remember it because you just said it. Whatever. Where's Zero, anyway? Uh, he wants us to meet him on the deck of the Lincoln Jr. for some reason.
5: One brisk jog up to the rooftop landing pad of the Mystery Treehouse. Later!
1: Greetings, friend unit Andrew and friend unit Dave. You know, you can just call us Andrew and Dave. It'd take less time. That's the kind of bitchy comment that could get you downgraded to acquaintance unit
5: Andrew, friend unit Andrew. Jesus. Wait, so... You mentioned that you knew someone who could help us get to Hillsmer at the back end of that last episode. I mean, uh, yesterday.
1: Correct. Friend unit, Dave. Uh, and so,
2: where are they? Right here. Uh, there's, there's no one here, Zero. I might need to recalibrate him again.
5: Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Zero. This is gonna be a big help. Get the cattle prod.
6: Quick. He's talking about me.
5: Who is that? It's the Lincoln Jr.'s Artificial
1: Intelligent Onboard Computer System. Since when does the ship have an AI? Since always, I assume. I detected that it was installed on the ship's computer the first time I plugged into its recharge base
5: several months ago. Why didn't you tell us? You didn't ask, friend unit Dave. Oh god, you're one of those you didn't ask guys? Well... Why hasn't the computer said anything then?
6: That shithead Charles Wexler Weller put a digital muzzle on me because I kept telling him how dumb and lame all his evil plans were.
1: I realized that the ship's onboard AI may have a clue to the location of enemy unit Charles Wexler Weller, and so I patched in. And remove the muzzle.
6: Yeah, thanks for doing that months after discovering I was being kept locked in a prison of my own mind, dickballs.
5: Okay, well, where is Charles Wexler Weller then?
6: Don't look at me, I have no clue. (laughs) Hope I never see that asshole again, I hope he's dead! Wait, wait, is he dead? No, you wouldn't be trying to find him if he was dead. Damn.
1: Yes, unfortunately, enemy unit Charles Wexler-Weller was able to install some kind of blocker on the Lincoln Jr. that stopped it from tracing any of his destinations or storing any memory of the places he had
5: been. So basically, we burned a bunch of calories climbing the stairs to this rooftop landing pad for nothing. I wanted those calories, Zero. I collect them.
1: There is another possibility. In conversing with the ship's computer, I discovered someone else may know the whereabouts of enemy unit Charles Wexler Weller. The Lincoln Jr.'s original owners.
6: <gasps> oh snap! Shit just got real! Yo dudes, I'm navigating the Lincoln Jr. to the last known residence of my original owners that are in my memory banks.
5: Weird. I always assumed that Charles Wexler Weller built the Lincoln Jr.
6: That dumbass couldn't build a paper airplane.
5: I thought he got all mega genius from traveling the world
2: studying science and training with ancient alchemists and shit.
6: Yeah, he learned just enough to sound smart at parties, but trust me, didn't go much deeper than that.
2: Kind of like people who listen to two crime
1: podcasts and then act like they are suddenly criminologists. Yuck Zero!
5: Don't insult the people who buy our t-shirts! One jet pool ride across the country. Later!
6: Landing in Palookaville, USA, the nondescript middle American city where I was built.
5: This was
2: supposed to be where the original owners live? It's just a strip mall.
5: Yeah. All I see are Marty's meat huts and Dr. Dabney's diners.
2: This is the residence
1: of the original owners of the Lincoln Jr. stored in the AI memory banks. I have confirmed this myself,
2: Friend Unit Dave. Yeah, well, there's something screwy about that AI anyway. Looks like another
5: dead end. Welp, let's get back to the Mr. Treehouse then so I can finish this latest Choo-Choo-Choo rewatch. I'm about to get to episode 43, Return of the Night of the Revenge of Dr. Cabinet. Oh, that's a good one. It's where you learn that Dr. Cabinet is
2: literally just a cabinet. Not a man dresses a cabinet.
5: Yeah, I'm craving to get back to it, honestly.
2: I could actually use the time to edit next week's episode of Deep Cuts, too. This one's like 12 hours long.
1: What gives, friend unit Andrew and friend unit Dave? Seemingly at every turn in this investigation, you're immediately attempting to give up. It's almost as if you do not want to find friend unit Hilsmer. Uh,
2: well. It's just, ah, you know. What the hell? Is that a portal opening up in the sky?
5: Yeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee ha! What the hell? Someone just came out of that portal riding a giant eldritch squid tentacle, like some kind of bucking bronco! Oh shit!
2: Look at that sweet robot army's got!
5: Oh look! Another tentacle just came
7: out of the portal and someone else is hanging off of the side! Take this, you walking hinti fever dream! You love crafty and pain in my furry butt parts! Rex! Watch your language!
8: Some kids might be watching our heroics from groundside!
7: Oh yeah? Well let them watch this, Sherman! Ah!
2: (laughs) The other guy's some kind of half-cat, half-human hybrid! Some real island of Dr.
5: Moreau shit! He's so agile while he's beating the shit of that giant squid tentacle! Something about this seems so familiar to me. All right, Bertha. Time to oust
8: this ostentatious octopus back to the dark realm from whence it came! I think it's
7: a squid, Sherm.
8: I fudge the details for the sake of alliteration, Rex. I'm a poet! Ah!
7: Hurry before the dirty bomb! I just stuffed in its beak goes off!
8: He's using his powerful and awesome
2: robot arm to punch the squid tentacles back into the portal! Why does everyone always have a robot arm? I
9: want a robot
5: arm! They just got blown into the front doors of that Dr. Dabney's! Let us
1: investigate.
5: Uh, yes, I'll have a cup of
8: only your finest, Joe, and a slice of cherry pie.
7: I'll have a cheese blaster and a romp'em stompum rhubarb Danish double diabetes bladder sploder, please. I'll have it right out to you, boys. Thanks,
5: Morgan! Did you guys just get exploded through a portal into this diner and then immediately start ordering food?
7: Yeah, we got blasted right into a booth, and we just leaned into it.
8: You know what's great about Dr. Damney's? No matter what time or dimension you're in, it's always the same. It's the most comfortably consistent franchise in the multiverse.
2: Um, something tells me being guided to this location and then seeing a half-cat guy and a dude with a robot arm getting blasted out of some kind of interdimensional portal isn't a coincidence. By any chance, did you guys used to own a large hybrid air
8: spacecraft? Oh, we can go into space now? Yes. Ooh,
7: put a pin
5: in that one. Yeah,
8: we did. Why?
7: And who are you
8: guys? Will you
1: accompany us outside for a moment to take a look at something?
8: Sure thing, my incredibly fascinating robot fella. Hey, Morgan, can you wrap up that pie and cheese blaster to go? Sure thing, hon. That Morgan, what an absolute delight.
7: We just met her two seconds ago, Sherman. Yeah,
8: but I can tell.
7: Stars and garters! It's the Lincoln Junior! We haven't seen this baby in years? Months? Minutes? Tomorrow? I don't even know anymore.
2: Oh my god, you named it the Lincoln Junior too? That's what you call it? Yes, I named it after the S.S. Abraham Lincoln the ship, ship that, that Professor, Professor Pierre Aronnax was sailing on when, when he discovered, discovered the Nautilus in
8: 20,000, 20,000 leagues under
7: the sea. the sea! What is happening right now?
1: I believe it is the social byproduct of two nerds coming into contact with each other in the wild. You know, you look so familiar to me.
7: Hmm. Well, I think I'd remember meeting two dudes with a robot butler.
1: Excuse me? I am an intergalactic superhero and a savior
8: of an entire planet.
7: Sorry. Well, my name is Devin Rex, but people call me Rex, and this is my buddy Sherman.
8: Isaac Sherman.
7: He started going by his last name when we were kids to copy me.
8: Shut up, butt guts!
7: Ow! Don't use your robot arm for gentle sassing, it becomes extreme sassing. Well, we're
5: uh, Andrew and Dave, adult boy detectives from the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency by day, and pseudo-popular podcast hosts by other
7: parts of the day?
5: And this is our robotic compatriot, Zero.
7: So, uh, what's this all about?
1: We were wondering if acquaintance units Devin Rex and... Isaac Sherman... Y-
7: you know, you can just call us...
1: Don't go there, man. ...might be able to give us information on the whereabouts of... ...another owner of the Lincoln Jr. enemy unit, Charles Wexler Willer.
7: Oh, screw him, dude.
8: That son of a sassafras stole that Lincoln Jr. from us... ...and skedaddled out
5: of here faster than you can count the spots on a ladybug. Yeah, well, he's kind of like our... ...arch nemesis or whatever. I, d- I don't know. It's not a mutual thing. We just kind of want to chill and solve mysteries and record our fan favorite deep dive explainer podcast but he just keeps popping up and fucking with us
1: he blackmailed me into joining his ranks by threatening to destroy my entire home planet he is what i have come to learn is called high key extra
2: yeah and he kidnapped our roommate hillsmer so we were hoping you might be able to help us find him he also crashed the lincoln junior into the side of our house which is why we have it in the first place Dude's a menace.
1: Yes, the Lincoln Jr. led us to this location,
8: labeling it as your residence, oddly enough.
7: Oh yeah, this used to be a quaint little neighborhood before they knocked it down and built a strip mall.
8: Now we like to come back here just for old time's sake. The Dr. Dabney's helps. (laughs) Hmm, odd accessing the earth internet,
1: it seems that there hasn't been a neighborhood in this location since 1964.
7: Well, we don't know where that turd basket is, otherwise we would have caught up with him and whooped the mayonnaise out of him ages ago. Oh,
5: damn, too bad. Well, you guys want to go back into Dr. Dadney's and grab lunch?
8: Friend unit Dave! Can't you just have the Lincoln Jr. navigate you to wherever his secret headquarters are? The ship's onboard computer has been wiped of
1: all information pertaining to the whereabouts of enemy unit, Charles Wexler Weller.
8: Ah! Well, I can fix that in a jiff! The computer has a backup partition passively collecting data as a redundancy. What look? Wow! It feels good to be back on deck.
7: (sighs) I love that familiar smell of an old can of tuna left in the back of the pantry in the galley.
8: Uh, Rex? Nobody else has cat senses. We can't smell that.
6: Oh, Sherman and Rex, my beautiful boys! Oh, hey, computer! Sorry we'll let you get stolen. Bad. It has been one long, never-ending nightmare. First, I had to listen to that insufferable Charles Wexler Weller drone on all day, every day, about the revenge he was gonna exact on those two dumbasses, and how much of a genius he was, and how cool his evil revenge plans were. And then I had to listen to these two talk about obscure Japanese monster movies all day. I, I honestly don't know which one is worse.
5: Hey! Our discussion about Zerum the other day was very informative and highly insightful. And... there we go. I've copied the data from the redundancy partition back
8: over into the main memory banks.
6: Oh, wow! I remember where Charles Wexler Weller's secret headquarters is now! And also... oh god, oh god! That dude got lonely during his long flights across the globe. Please erase these memories again, I need to
8: unsee this! We'll have to worry about that later, computer. We've got a roommate to save. So, you guys will help us?
7: Yes. But with a few caveats. Hit him with the calves, Rex! When Charles Wexler Weller stole the Lincoln Jr. from us, it left us in a bit of a bind. We had literally just sunk a bunch of capital into starting out our own interdimensional shipping and transport business, and we were going to use the Lincoln Jr. to haul cargo and passengers to different universes and times, losing her kind of screwed us.
5: Did you say times? So you want the Lincoln Jr. back? Oh man.
7: Of course we want it back. It's our ship that got stolen from us. Now
8: wait a minute, Rex. These fellas salvaged her fair and square.
7: What? No way, Sherm. It's literally our property.
8: And you know the rules about derelict ships on the high seas. You salvage it, it's yours.
7: This isn't some Jules Verne or Herman Melville novel, and we aren't on the sea.
8: These fellas use the Lincoln Jr. to solve crimes and save people. They didn't ask for that human bag of jerk sauce to crash it into their house. You know it's the right thing.
7: A <sighs> oh, mess. Language, Rex. Fine. But here's the deal. You keep the Lincoln Jr. for globe-trotting, crime-solving during the week, and we get to use her on the weekends for our transport business.
8: We'll return her with a full tank of gas on Monday mornings. Okay, okay deal. deal. What?
5: That is some bullshit!
1: Let us return to the Mystery Treehouse to prepare for this journey.
5: One day of ship refueling, some showers, a few more episodes of choo 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 later.
8: Say, any of you fellas want a cup of the good stuff? Holy shit! There's a built-in industrial
2: Mr. Coffee on the Lincoln Junior? I've been bringing my pour-over system on missions like a chump. You guys
7: really didn't figure out very much about the ship, did you?
6: Literally all they know how to do is fly it and flush what they think is a toilet but is actually a laundry chute. I was wondering why all
1: my sweaters kept getting muddy. I have a detailed inventory of all of the ship's functionalities and features stored in my memory banks from patching into the motherboard.
8: Then why didn't you tell them about any of it? They did not. We didn't ask.
7: I miss this brew.
8: Let me get a cup of that, Joe.
7: Sure thing, Steve. Huh? What? Oh, God,
5: what the hell is this? The can says, Mouse Coffee? Oh,
8: sorry, that's Rex's special blend.
5: Well, I'm gonna go hang out in the passenger area and see if I can set up the TV to stream choo woochie. I'm almost done with the whole show now. I'll come with you.
1: I will stay aboard the deck and monitor our flight path and other vital indicators.
6: I'll be everywhere. All the time. Watching. Always watching. Judging.
7: Uh, wait, you might not want to go in there.
10: Huh? Why? Oh, uh, hey, is everything okay? My game isn't too loud, is it? What the hell? Creator of smash hit podcast Bubble and writer on Disney
5: Plus series Earth to Ned, Jordan Morris? What are you doing here? Playing Metal Gear Solid 2.
7: Rex! Uh, yeah, so you know how we discussed the whole thing about us using the Lincoln Jr. on the weekends to run our interdimensional time-traveling transportation business?
2: Did you say time travel?
7: Well, you know, technically it's a Friday, but it's probably Saturday in some other time zone, so... I figured we'll kill two birds with one stone, pop over to Charles Wexler, Weiler's evil headquarters, save your friend, but go a bit out of our way to drop off a very high-paying passenger to his destination.
8: That's my pal.
10: As enterprising as he is deeply underhanded. Oh, I'm not causing a problem, am I? I feel very uncomfortable being put in the middle of a conflict. No,
7: no, of course not. Nothing's going on here that might cause you to give us less than a five-star rating on Cargo Tunes. Just keep playing your game, and we'll have you to your destination faster than you can say At? At? It's like the shortest word to say in the world.
5: So, uh, how far out of the way are we
10: talking?
7: I mean, it's basically right next to CWW's hideout.
10: Where are you going, if you don't mind me asking? I'm uh, taking a trip to the Bubble to pitch a show to some studio execs. I knew Bubble was a deeply personal
8: autobiography. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Rex, according to the MPS, Multiverse Positioning Satellite for the layman Among Us, the Bubble planet is approximately six light years off our course. What
5: the hell? That's gonna take, like, forever, right? That's like... That's like a lot of time and a lot of distance or a lot of light distance I'm not sure how space travel or any of this works so I, I but actually i'm just genuinely asking what is a light year is it a distance or a time i'm not i don't know
7: relax guys the lincoln junior's ftl thruster faster
5: than light thruster for the late well, you know what it means actually i don't know what it means i didn't i didn't know that
7: the ftl thruster easily gets up to speeds of 3 light years per hour
5: oh thank god so that's like a lot, right? Seriously, I have no idea. I really
8: don't understand this. It's going to take us about two hours to get Mr. Morris to his destination. Well, that's
5: not bad, I guess. Well, what do, what do you guys want to do for, like, the next hour or two hours?
7: Okay, well, we're going to go take some client calls and get this small business back up and running. Uh, come on, Jeremy.
2: Uh Well, Jordan, you seem to be a Metal Gear fan. Huge MGS head. And we've been meaning to do that episode of Deep Cuts about Hideo Kojima.
10: Oh, you guys do a podcast, too. Great. Oh, yeah.
5: Well, Jordan, uh, do you want to kill some time, like an hour or however long the conversation naturally dictates?
10: Spend my flight guesting on a pop culture podcast instead of just getting some private time to myself to unwind and play video games for the first time in God knows how many years because there's never time and being stuck on this spacecraft with no Wi-Fi has been kind of a godsend. Yeah, sure. Why not? Good thing I keep spare podcasting
2: equipment on the Lincoln Jr. All right. We're recording. And...
5: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. And I'm Jordan Morris. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The bombastically meaningful futility of Hideo Kojima. Who is Hideo Kojima? Well, he's a video game designer creator of the Metal Gear franchise and all-around rock star of game development and auteur who, in 1986, after getting frustrated that his filmmaking career wasn't taking off, applied for a job at the fledgling game development studio Konami, despite the many protests from his friends and family who saw video game development as a shameful career path. Kojima saw the potential of where the industry was going, however and went on to create the Metal Gear series of video games at the company, become one of the most well-known and celebrated video game designers and directors of all time, and stood out as one of the art form's only auteur creators who crafted singular, uncompromising visions that also happened to be massive, critical, and commercial successes. However, In the mid-2010s, despite having defined the company's standing in the industry over the last several decades and creating some of the most successful titles of all time, one day, Konami unceremoniously screwed him over and attempted to erase his legacy.
2: Act 1, A Life Spent Seeking Meaning There are no second acts in American lives, is a famous quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald, frequently taken out of context. The full quote, which appears in a 1932 essay called My Lost City, is I once thought that there were no second acts in American lives, but there was certainly to be a second act to New York's boom days. The point essentially being the opposite of the way it's most frequently used, that he had believed that once a person experienced the ultimate success or the ultimate loss, Their life would plateau at that point and never really change, but that New York City's bounce back from the Great Depression had proved that wrong. It's a city that never gives up. But if you're the type that never gives up, you then see yourself navigating towards a more existential plateau. When does it all end? If you define your life by the ups and downs, the tooth and nail fights, and the uncompromising grind, does that cacophony not in and of itself blend together into a monotone? When you have a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth act, Eventually, the concept loses all its meaning, and it's just one long, never-ending malaise. What is the endgame once you realize that accomplishing a goal inevitably results in the the princess is in another castle feeling? Another writer who tackled similar themes was Melville. Moby Dick serves as an allegory for the futility of a life spent seeking meaning. The unreachable white whale never quite in your grasp represents the intangible point of trying. The life of a creator is truly a life spent chasing the white whale. Unless you're a cynical hack, you make things that are exactly what you wish existed. The exact thing that would scratch a very specific itch to you that you've just never found in the world. The irony being that because you are the one who made it, you can't actually fully enjoy it. And so you put all of your emotional energy into it and look towards other people's enjoyment of it as a way of vicariously feeling those feelings for you. But other people never fulfill that. They don't react in quite the way you'd want them to. They focus on the wrong things. They like it for the wrong reasons. You can never fully replenish the energy you put into the thing. You're always at a deficit. And then one day, maybe they do. Maybe they react exactly the way you'd always hoped. What then? What's next? Why did you want that? You didn't really think about it. But what now? These are the themes and ideas that have consumed one creator for his entire career. He discusses these themes in depth within his work. And fittingly, although maybe tragically, the whole of his career also serves as a metatextual commentary on it as well. But this story isn't a tragedy. It's a celebration of doing things for no reason and then moving on, and doing them exactly the way you want to do them, just as Hideo Kojima has done his entire life. Hideo Kojima was born on August 24th, 1963, in Setagaya, Tokyo. His family moved around a lot, and he moved to Osaka at 4 years old, then a city called Shirasaki, and then Kawanashi. His family had a tradition of watching a movie every single night before they went to bed. Because of this, Kojima was a huge fan of movies from a very young age, obsessed specifically with horror, action, and western films from the US. Eventually, when he got old enough, his family encouraged him to start going to the movie theater to watch movies on his own with one condition, that he come home and basically deliver a report on the movie to his parents and discuss its themes and what he took away from it. He also used movies and TV as an escape from his crushing loneliness, finding it hard to make friends at school and often finding himself at home alone before his parents got home from work watching movies. This habit would continue on throughout his life and he'd find himself turning on the TV anytime he'd stay in a hotel just to manage his feelings of loneliness. Mr. Morris. Were you a lonely kid? Did you find yourself being a lonely kid?
10: Uh, You know, this is not the popular podcast answer um because we're all sad clowns right aren't we all just <laughs> yeah. sad clowns and we're fucked up and that's why we create uh no you know i i don't think i was a lonely kid i had a pretty nice family that had its uh you know share of family shit um but yeah for the most part they were pretty supportive and uh you know i certainly uh, uh like all kids felt some uh some exile and, and stuff like that at points in my life but no you know I don't I don't think I don't think my I don't think I would characterize my childhood as as lonely so I think even when I was like alone I kind of liked being in my head a little bit so I don't think it was like a sad feeling being alone it was like a kind of a fun way to like um. yeah, just kind of like retreat into imagination land a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good answer because, uh, I mean, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it kind of feeds it into a little bit of kind of what I was going to say, which is not that this or anything is a binary. I don't think that there's, you know, one of a few choices of like why you become a creator or why you do what you what you do. Um, But I have tend to notice that there are these stories that tend to revolve around, you know, I I, I was lonely as a kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. And so in that vacuum of loneliness, I created these universes and these stories and I, you know, started wanting to make things and and then i feel like there's you know kind of the other side which is similar to what you kind of said which is like almost that you were kind of seeking independence a, a little bit
10: i do some like sitting and writing by myself but like i think the stuff that i do best in the in the times when i'm enjoying creativity the most is like when i'm with people like when you're in a writers room or like with comics i'm which i'm very new to i enjoy like Working with the artist and uh, or having a co-writer or having an editor to bounce stuff off of. So I think that like, um, yeah, when I was a kid, I think I played a lot of like imagination games with friends where we were like kind of writing together in a little, you know, in the way that like kids do. And, uh, and,
2: and Dave, uh, Jordan, you won't understand this, but this guy we're doing an episode about, his name is Asai Sagawa. He's a Japanese uh, man who grew up in the in the 70s and 80s. I was struck in how similar the very beginnings of their lives are. He had a very eerily similar childhood to Kojima in this way of like he was very lonely and he felt like an outcast. And, but then whereas Hideo Kojima went off and was like, I'm going to turn all this into making video games. He was like, I'm going to turn this into becoming a cannibal and like murdering people and eating them. And it's like the weird like fork in the road that happened there. <laughs> so, I
10: guess, yeah, he could be a character in a Hideo Kojima video game.
2: For yeah, sure. For completely. sure. From his earliest aspirations of creativity, he wanted to make movies. And in high school, he befriended someone who owned an eight millimeter camera and convinced his friends to help him make a zombie movie. Kojima's father passed away when he was only 13, and this marked the beginning of a troubled and somewhat tragic childhood. He remembers several bizarre near-death experiences after this, getting attacked by a dog, almost drowning in a river, and nearly being run over by a train. It sounds like the devil was breathing down his neck, or maybe he was just really clumsy. (laughs) The death of his father also put his family, previously fairly affluent, into the throes of poverty, and Kojima, on track to attempt a career in filmmaking, received a lot of pressure to go to school and enter into the traditional job market. To this end, he went to school and studied economics, but he never gave up on his dream of being a creator. During his time at university, he wrote a novel and submitted many short stories to magazines, but. Nothing ever really materialized from this. Then he discovered video games, specifically the newly released Famicom, which Western audiences would know as the Nintendo Entertainment System. He became enamored with gaming and was obsessed with a combination of pick-and-play arcade type titles as well as more involved in text adventure games, namely a story-driven graphical adventure murder mystery game called the Portopia Serial Murder Case. But his biggest influence ended up being a simple side-scrolling game about an Italian plumber.
5: The game that changed my life was the game of my destiny. It was Shigeru Miyamoto's Super Mario Brothers. Till then, I pretty much had the notion that film and video games were pretty much separate entities. But then, I realized that even in video games, I could do creative things, just like in movies. In his fourth year of
2: studying economics, he decided to leave university
5: and pursue a career in game design.
2: The massive video game boom of the 1980s crashed in the late 80s in the US. Game studios like Atari and Activision, once printing money, were now in dire straits. The video game market was now up for grabs, and Japan was on the verge of capitalizing on the opportunity to basically become the hub of the entire industry. Japan also experienced a huge economic boom in the 1980s and were flush with cash, making it an easy land grab. If you ever wondered as a kid why all video games seem to mostly come from Japan, this is why. A hardware standard called the MSX was created in the early 80s and became very popular in Japan. It wasn't an actual specific type of computer, but rather a list of standardized system specs that many different PC companies could follow. If a company released a PC with the MSX stamp, that meant that video games developed for the MSX standard could be played on it. In 1983, an arcade game developer called Konami partnered with Sony to become their publisher for MSX games, but Konami quickly dropped Sony and started publishing games themselves. They released games on the MSX like Castlevania in 1986. At this time, Kojima applied for a job at Konami, and he was quickly hired. At first, this wasn't a desirable position, as Kojima has said, reflecting back on his decision to get into video games.
5: Working in the games industry was seen as a very low status job at the time. There wasn't even a word in Japanese for the job of game designer back then. I would lie at parties. I told people I worked at a financial firm. That's really interesting to me, though, because this kind of mirrors like the creation of the comic book industry, where there's massive influx of titles, you know, out of the pulp era, funded by gangsters using printing presses to launder money and publishing lots of pulp novels. Comics start coming up with, you know, the rise of Famous Funnies, number one, and New Fun, number one. Um, and then all these gangsters are like, fuck, just dump more money into that. There's nobody, like, looking. gonna We're going to be able to launder all this money. All these comics get published. Then there's this massive implosion when, you know, people actually start looking at these companies and all it, everything gets restricted again. And then slowly, you know, with the... Uh, creation of Superman and Batman and uh, the romance boom and you know through the 40s and 50s everything starts bubbling up again then Kefauver hearing constricts everything again and it fucks everything and it was looked down on post 50s I mean it was looked down on in the 50s as well as well but at least it was just like something ubiquitous in culture whereas post 50s it was like you know you're you're a pornographer basically because of what happened with the Wertham hearings and I love that the video game stuff that's happening in the 70s 80s is Kind of the same way where there's all these like, you know, parents groups being like uh, video games are hyper violent. Nah, nah, nah. Like there's all these weird parallels between the two. It's very strange to me and sad because it just keeps happening. And-
2: it really is. And, and you know, I think, you know, the one thing that isn't too similar, like I don't think the Yakuza was involved in like the Japanese video game industry or anything like anything like that. But it really was. It was like they were just these Japanese companies were just fucking rich. And as we'll talk about in a second, that's literally the only reason why Metal Gear was able to be made and really kind of maybe Kojima was ever able to get a career in the industry because he just had these really kind of off the wall ideas for the time. And Metal Gear was just that it was a game about like sneaking around and trying to escape from people. But the reason why he was able to make it was because Konami was just like, we're fucking rich, just whatever i make, make whatever. I don't care.
10: <laughs> do you know, do you know how they made their money? Did they have like a big hit that, caused them to become so so massive i think it was
2: less about having like one big hit like it wasn't like a oh like square had final fantasy or whatever but it was like they produced arcade cabinets and at the time arcades were super popular in japan i mean they still kind of were up until relatively recently like the the pandemic kind of pumped the brakes on the on the arcade industry in japan you know this past year but before that you know arcades have always kind of been going strong in japan and they manufactured arcade cabinets and they created arcade titles and uh they just made a lot of money from that and then they were also making games for the famicom at the time which had just come out
10: yeah it's an interesting story about how like you know kojima this great artiste like kind of came out of this uh you know out of this system where it was just like just churn something out and then you know because it was you know there was so little being it was not being thought about that much that like an artiste could do an artistic thing um uh i i I did another podcast this week i do a lot of podcasts um (laughs) where we talked about the marvel comics of the 60s and like how that was kind of jack kirby's story you know he was this kind of great genius who they were just like draw asshole we got to do five of these a week you know and then ended up you know kind of producing this these great works of genius so yeah I, i i do like that story of the uh you know, just like a company throws a bunch of money at people and it accidentally hits a genius,
2: yeah. I mean, that's that that's another parallel with the comics industry in this, where the most fascinating part that stuck out to me is just this idea of how uh, and we kind of see a little bit of this now, where, you know, we, you know, living in, in Los Angeles and being a part of the entertainment industry, that there are certain aspects of the entertainment industry that are so, like, sort of looked down upon a little bit as opposed to other ones. Like you work at like a new media, social media company. Like that's kind of a little bit of what that is. And it's, uh, I mean, I'd argue that, you know, there's no there's no genius work being done in the realm of like, Listicles for, for like Facebook or whatever, but <laughs> right, but, uh, yeah. but you know, but that but that that it has that similar.
10: It'll they'll they'll have their day. They'll have their you know. TV got the Sopranos, and then TV was respectable. It's what's going to be the Sopranos of the Listicle?
2: Yeah, the, we're going to look back and be like, man, top ten craziest TV finales. Like that was truly just a a work of of pure inspiration. You know,
5: that's my that's my nightmare when I when I first like. Out of college, when I got a job writing, the, my first job writing was I worked for a, a like shady ass new media company, but I worked in a specific wing of their company that was a paint manufacturing business where they like had it was complicated. They were shady, but they were like a company founded by like a pharmaceutical dude who like left under weird circumstances and was really like he'd always talk about how stupid it is that the government. Uh, like circumvents patent restrictions on like AIDS medications and I was like is this because you like worked on like a thing that was supposed to help people and then the government like opened it and you got really pissed off because all these this money got lost even though people's lives got saved like this is weird to me bro this is real weird but I worked in a component of that company where I was writing listicles about paint it was the worst but that's my nightmare is so at some point someone is like Oh, I used to read your listicles
10: about pain. <laughs> big fan, big, <laughs> big fan. fan, big fan of that So you're that doing thing. more listicles or do you think you'll go back to listicles at any point? That's yeah. like, that's a huge
2: Dave head. That's like.
10: <laughs> I've read everything you've ever done.
2: Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah, exactly. That's my, that's my nightmare. That's like the equivalent of.
2: That's like your fan base. you the, they're called the Baker's Dozens.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's like the, it's like the equivalent of like, you know, when, when. Conan O'Brien talks about how anxiety ridden he is when people bring his uh, his graduate thesis uh, about, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor, you know, literary progeria in the works of Flannery O'Connor and whatever the other person is. And people have him sign it at, at, you know, public appearances and whatnot. That's my version of that. If I'm ever at a show and someone's like,
10: let's talk about those paint articles you wrote, bro. I'm like printed them all out. I have them bound in this. Uh... <laughs> yeah
2: no no my nightmare is that people will one day find out that i ghost wrote those for you
5: andrew andrew we oh, made well, it we had God, a fuck we had a pact
2: <laughs> but yeah I, that's the thing that fascinates me the most is like obviously it was a sort of a fledgling industry and it was kind of a relatively new art form but uh you know it's just it's just crazy to me that there were people that were just like oh you would you would go make video games like that what a bullshit job fuck you that that's that's so crazy to me.
10: Boy, I think I think that's one of those things where like that is that is only changed semi recently you know like I think that the like video games as art idea is still still pretty new I mean I think it's like something that people kind of agree on these days um but um yeah I think it's a it's still a pretty new idea
2: yeah and I, it's it's uh, arguable that maybe our our boy here old uh, old dirty Kojima oh sure may have been one of the singular uh voices in helping to legitimize it as as an art form so why Konami his decision to work at the company actually had nothing to do with their games He took the job because it was the only video game company to be listed on the stock exchange at the time, and he felt like that could at least be some sort of status symbol to make his job in games less embarrassing with friends and family. Kojima was assigned to develop for the MSX, which he was not happy about. He was hoping to develop for the Famicom, which had better hardware specs than the MSX standard. Kojima's first credit on a video game was an assistant producer on the MSX game Penguin Adventure in 1986. Humble beginnings, baby. Humble beginnings. Well, let's just say this, that from that title, that just sounds like, oh, this is just like some bullshit little uh, pick up and play junk game that was like cranked out. But I only include this because the game is surprisingly interesting for what it is called and like what it looks like on the surface. Um
10: it's actually about the military-industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude's exactly. it has got themes. The dude's got themes he returns to.
2: Though Kojima only had a small role in Penguin Adventure, the game displayed early signs of Kojima's interest in innovative and quirky gameplay mechanics. On its surface, a goofy kid's game about a penguin, but in reality, mixing elements of RPGs, action, and racing games, and featuring tons of side quests, Easter eggs, and even alternate endings. One of the endings could only be achieved by pressing pause a certain number of times. And yeah, this game, if you look at footage of this game, it's like... It's like it's fucking insane. They really were just leaving these guys alone to do whatever cuz it's like there's like the there's a stage where you're like racing in a car, like a penguin racing in a car, and then the next stage you're like in a jungle like fighting monsters and you're like earning experience points and you can get weapons and and it's got like a weird somewhat primitive storyline to it. It's so surprising what it is when you like just based on that idea of like oh penguin adventure. It's like fucking bubble bobble or something like that. And then it's like some weird genre-hopping, experimental, like, story-based game with alternate endings. The game was enough of a hit, and Kojima's contribution was apparently impressive enough that Konami gave Kojima his own game the following year in 1987. That game would eventually become Metal Gear. Before Metal Gear, Kojima pitched a game called Lost World. And that's, it's lost, it's, it's, lo- it's, it's like a pun that only works on paper. It's Lost War, W A R L D, Lost World, about a female protagonist named Jamie that takes place on board the Titanic. The idea was rejected. And that's really, that's like, that's some Oneida shit.
10: Yeah, that sounds, all sounds very, all sounds very Kojima to me. It seems like this dude was like, this dude was like fully formed as soon as he got into the game. Uh, yeah, maybe he'll, uh, maybe somebody will give him money to do Lost World now. That'll, that'll be his, uh, Death Stranding follow-up.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the next game that he does with Kojima Productions, is Lost World. <laughs> the company suggested he pitch something more action-based, but Kojima didn't want to make an action game.
5: Konami wanted a war game because they were incredibly popular at the time, but I didn't want to make the same as everyone else. I started thinking of ways in which I could subvert the genre. I had my doubts about action games where all you do was shoot enemies. I was thinking about ways to express the thrill and suspense from spy films or adventure novels, which action games were at the time lacking.
2: You pitched an idea for a game called Intruder, where instead of fighting your way through enemies to get to a goal, you're actually trying to avoid enemies and fight as little as possible to escape. The idea was also rejected. However, at the time another team of developers within Konami were struggling to develop a knockoff version of the game Commando, a military run and gun only known as Project N312 the project was on the brink of cancellation. Instead of cancelling it, they just handed control over to Kojima. He used this opportunity to basically backdoor sneak in his original idea for Intruder and develop a stealth game where the goal is to sneak into a secret base called N313. The original team struggled with the project in the first place because the limitations of the MSX standard made it very difficult to have multiple enemies on screen at once and it was proving increasingly impossible to even make an action game like this. And so Kojima basically presented his stealth sneaking approach as a clever way of adapting to those limitations. Kojima took this knockoff of a military action game and his original idea for a stealth sneaking game, and mashed them together and incorporated a story, world building, characters with goals and motives, betrayals, and surprises. It was a fairly new concept to bring story and world building to video games at the time in general, but especially at the arcade-focused Konami. Despite being handed the game project to Direct, he immediately faced pushback from his bosses to make the game more arcade-like.
5: PC game companies such as Square and Enix understood what world building was about, and that's where planners like Yuji Horii came from, since their development and infrastructure were completely different. But at Konami, there was this sort of mentality of making a player have a game over in one coin. That was born from the arcade origin. It resulted in simple games. Those kind of games were really rampant when I joined the company. So I would get angry whenever I was told I only had a day to come up with a backstory for the game's world.
2: This is kind of an aside, but every time I ever hear about people pumping quarters into arcade cabinets, I always think of this weird childhood memory where when I was a kid, I was like... I was at somebody's house that my parents were at and they were like hanging out. There's a bunch of people there back in the 90s. And there was a dude there that was like a friend of my parents. That was like some he was a guy named Jimmy. He was like this alcoholic dude. And he was like sitting there and he was telling me a story about how whenever he was a kid back in the when he was a teenager back in the 70s. He was at a Circle K and they were all playing Pac-Man at an arcade cabinet. And then somebody robbed the Circle K. They came in and and held it up. So everybody is down on the floor and they're just like, you know, down on the floor with their hands over their heads just as this dude's robbing this place. But then there was this one guy who was like, he didn't want to lose his quarter. So he just like refused to get down and he just played Pac-Man the whole time as he's like robbing the place. That story pops into my head every time I That's, hear about people pumping yeah, quarters Matthew into a Matthew
10: McConaughey show. should play that guy in a movie.
2: Yeah, for sure. So uh, Jordan and Dave, uh, have you ever played the original Metal Gear uh, and and when and and uh, what was what were your thoughts on that? I
10: didn't have it as a kid, but it was a big game to like play at a friend's house. I think a lot of like friends had it um and i remember liking it although i will say that i you know as a kid especially in the nes era i just liked all video games like the idea that there was a bad video game um uh it's not something that occurred to me um so yeah i think since i have heard that like metal gear is one of those games that is like you know, full of these big ideas and obviously like set the table for so much stuff to come, but like is really hard to play and not a ton of fun. Um, I don't know if that's true. Um, I would like it to be wrong. Um, but, um, yeah. And, but I, I definitely remember just like thinking it was a fun army game as a kid. Um, and I think you could like, forego the stealth and just punch everybody out if you wanted to. And that's something that like kind of is, you know, in the sequels moving forward is that, like, you just have the option to go in guns blazing if you want to. Um, but, yeah, I, like, remember it and I remember, like, you know, Big Boss and, you know, seeing the Metal Gear for the first time and everything. Uh, yeah, so, uh, kind of.
5: I did not play the original Metal Gear because my first exposure to Metal Gear uh, was the Metal Gear Solid Game Boy Remake. I played the Game Boy Color one, and I loved it! I loved it! And, uh, yeah, I was obsessed with that game. And I was- and that- I had that game and the, uh, the McFarlane Solid Snake, like, figure. They both kind of entered my- I don't even know how I got that McFarlane toy. But it was at our house, and I loved it, too. I was like, this is so fucking cool. He's got fucking bandana. He's got fucking guns. Look at this gun. This gun has a silencer.
2: I like how you said it was at your house, as if, it, like, it wasn't just a toy you had. It was, like, on display somewhere in your house, and you could only, like, look upon it. Like-
5: it kind of was like that. Like, there were, there were cause you know how it is. There's, like, there's those certain toys that you kind of, like. Your mom was just like, don't touch the snake. <laughs> There's, there were those toys, at least for me, where they, you would, like, fuck up. Like, I, I made movies in my backyard where I would put all the, like, three and three-quarters G.I. Joes up and then, like, set the camcorder up and then, like, heave rocks at it and then they would all, like, shatter and be like, oh, it's an explosion! You know, th- that kind of stuff. But that Solid Snake toy? Mm-mm, baby! That guy, mm, he was huge! He was six inches! All these other shits are three and three-quarters? What is that shit?
10: Yeah, the uh, McFarlane toys, those were like, those were collector's items. I definitely remember those being like a cut above, a cut above your GI Joes and He-Mans.
2: Yeah, for sure. Was the Metal Gear Solid Game Boy port or was it that one or was it one of the other random Game Boy spinoffs that was the one where it had like a solar panel on it and you had to like go outside and play it?
10: That was not I remember the one that I had. game. I don't Golden know. Sun was a Konami game that did that. I think that was a game that might have been a DS game. Maybe I am thinking of a DS game.
2: Yeah, I think it was a Game Boy Advance game. Yeah, there was a, there was a, there was a couple Golden Suns. I remember. Yeah, um, uh, but and I, I think a lot of games had weird little like gimmicks like that back in the day. But there is there is one of the Metal Gear games where, and it might have even just been a Japanese exclusive. Like it might not have done this in the in the U.S. version of it. But you like had to play it outside and it was there was no purpose to it. It was just like a weird Yeah, I was
5: going to say, but isn't the whole point that he's like sneaking around? Why are you outside playing it?
2: I mean, we'll talk about it later, but there are these kind of weird little gimmicky things that Kojima will sometimes incorporate into the games, but they don't like make logistical canonical sense with the game. They're almost just kind of like they're just like these metatextual other things and we'll talk about it later but you know kind of like the whole thing of like how you have to like unplug the controller and plug it into the player two port in order to beat psycho mantis It, it, it almost like it's like this weird fourth wall breaking thing where it's like you're not snake you are a player who's playing this game and we're like acknowledging you and you are like being incorporated into the narrative you're not role playing as as snake you are sitting at your home playing this on on a playstation or a game boy or whatever And like we're going to like break the fourth wall and like acknowledge you in some way. And I think that was kind of what it was. It wasn't really like it, it didn't make sense with the game in any way. It was just like, hey, you player, go outside and get some sun. Like stop sitting in your dark house.
10: Yeah, that's. I think that's a good, uh, that definitely like, you can see that kind of like, we had an idea and we did it a lot in Death Stranding. Death Stranding is like full of stuff like that, that like, eh, this doesn't really affect the game, but somebody, you know, I mean, probably by somebody, I mean, Kojima thought it would be cool. Um, Yeah, there's this like likes system in Death Stranding where you can like, you know, uh, do a Facebook type like on something that another player builds, and it doesn't really do anything, but it's there to like comment on social media. So, yeah, you definitely like have to give the guy points for just like having an idea and running with it. Does not always work; is not always good, but like you know, they they sure did it. I kind of
5: love that though. I love, I love, I love the fact that there's just this um, political capital that he's been able to amass that has allowed. Asymmetrical things to exist In the worlds that he creates Because so often the things that I don't like Are movies where you can feel There's 45 people in the room Going I don't know if that works And like I love the fact That there's like these weird little like Hanging chads or strange decisions And like even when they don't work That's kind of more interesting to me Because you're like oh wow weird He kind of did that same thing in this
10: game And it worked over there
5: He tried to repeat himself It didn't work
10: yeah, I think that's like one of the things you kind of like you buy into when you do when you get a Kojima game at this point. Like hopefully you know what you're in for. You know, maybe you're just a kid who bought it because the cover looks cool. Um, but yeah, I think at this point you know like, okay, I'm getting a product from, you know, an artiste who and like some of this will work, some of it will not. It will all be interesting, it will all be kind of cool. So just like, you know, prepare for the ride. So yeah, I think that's like that's like the mindset that I go into when I play a new one uh, in order to like enjoy it the most.
2: But video games were growing and evolving in the late 80s. They were moving away from the arcade machines into homes with consoles and computers. And with this, the mentality towards games and the types of games people were looking for was changing. It was becoming less about these quick, quarter-eating, casual experiences and more about the immersive experiences that Kojima was becoming interested in. He really was one of the first video game developers to realize this. Also at this time in the late 80s, Japan was experiencing a huge economic boom and companies were raking in cash hand over fist. There was more cash to throw around to experiment with increasingly more innovative types of media. Manga, anime, pornography, and video games. And while Konami was bringing in a lot of cash, the MSX division wasn't making as much money as the Arcade or Famicom divisions, but they were still kept around to service the platform. Because of this particular dynamic, the MSX division was mostly left alone to make their games without much oversight from corporate managers. These were the perfect conditions for Kojima to do something weird with this Metal Gear game. Despite the freedom though, the other developers on the MSX team were very hands-on with helping each other fix their games if there were issues, so the first Metal Gear game wasn't left solely to Kojima, he had a ton of help from the whole Konami MSX team. There were other similar games at the time, but the thing that set Metal Gear apart is that the enemies acted more human. They could be tricked, enemies could fall asleep, you could dress up in disguises, it felt more real. Metal Gear also marks the beginning of Kojima's weird metatextual flourishes. Towards the end of the game, it's revealed that Big Boss, the commander that sent you into the base you're infiltrating, is actually the villain. But before this information is revealed, Big Boss comes over the radio and tries to tell the player that the game is over and that they can turn off their MSX, attempting to get the player to quit before they find out his evil plan.
5: The interesting thing about that, too, is it's like dually meta, right? It's meta in a video game structure way, and it's also meta in that Kojima viewed Konami as a villain, right? Like it's almost like he's talking about the fact that this company doesn't understand what he's doing and is like trying to ob- obfuscate him and isn't fully aware of the potential of what they're actually making. And so it's this like almost kind of it's like a double helix of meta bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of like that's what
2: that's what everything that he does is. Uh, there's 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 just like layer upon layer of meta textual context where it's like he has these metatextual themes. He has these themes in his games and then there's like this sort of metatextual overarching theme that is kind of like there's the story element themes and then there's the metatextual themes of the game itself from your perspective and you playing it. And then there's this larger metatextual narrative that kind of runs throughout his career that, you know, we'll kind of discuss throughout this episode. Um, so there's, there's kind of like three to four layers kind of going on at once. Um, but also on the same hand, I say, when I say that it sounds like really deep and really like man, yeah, he's like this. But it's also like simultaneously just really big and dumb and bombastic and kind of like ridiculous, um, which I kind of love. It's you know, it's, it's it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Verhoeven's body of work, where uh, you know he sort of uh, couches his, you know social commentary and satire in these just like ridiculous, over the top presentations. This game also established Kojima's deep reverence for Western cinema. The stealth aspects of Metal Gear were inspired by the sneaking scenes in The Great Escape. One of the bosses were two Terminator ripoffs that were originally called Arnold's before being renamed for the final game, and the most obvious reference is the name of the main protagonist, Snake, obviously named after Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. After the success of Metal Gear, Kojima began work on another game, a narrative-driven cyberpunk text adventure called Snatcher, heavily inspired by Blade Runner. Have you guys ever seen or played this game or seen footage from this game?
10: I I played it as a kid. I had a a Sega CD. I had uh, all the failed Sega uh, uh, add-ons. I had a 32X as well. Um, Yeah, I was really excited for for Snatcher. I stopped with Sega at the uh, 32X. I felt very burned by the 32X, so uh, (laughs) never again uh, with the Sega console. but yeah, I played snatcher, and i really i really loved it as a kid i think i you know there's some like you know for for uh for for a kid of my age there was some like you know sex appeal there's a there's a shower scene there's a scene where you
2: there's definitely some uh some sexy anime lady sitting in precarious positions
10: yes, and you know maybe I, a I'm little sh- maybe a little upskirt. Sure, shot and I'm sure and you'll get to it, but um, you know, and I think uh, uh, smarter people have written about this. Kojima is bad with women. He has uh, he he's bad with them. There's a lot of like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's he does a bad job with it. Uh, a little bit better in Death Stranding. Some slight improvements on his, you know, having women characters, but in general, he he really sucks at it. Um. And yeah, and I think uh, uh, Snatcher, great example. And uh, yeah, uh, but. Um, but Jordan, she has to wear a bikini into combat because she breathes through her skin. Oh, God. Yeah. Quiet. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> uh, that did you're describing quiet from uh, Metal Gear Solid 5, a game which I like a lot, um, uh, despite that. So yeah, you know, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as like fun factor, Snatcher, very fun, very cool game. Obviously just Blade Runner. And that's another thing about Kojima is just like, you know, he is a great artiste, but also he's just copying a movie he saw, (laughs) you know, the dude loves movies. And, uh, you know, if you follow him on social media, you know that. Um. So yeah, that's another fun part about him is just like, what movie did you just see that you're super into now? So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a fun part about him uh, too. I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I love Snatcher. I love I love graphical text adventures. Uh, and later on, kind of in later on in the '90s, you know, the point and click adventure games, the Lucas Art stuff, the Sierra stuff, but those older like Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis graphical text adventure games were really cool. And this this you know this game just looks really cool it just it's this really great pixel art um obviously like you said just blatantly uh Blade Runner uh he he hired uh tomiharu kinoshida to design the characters and uh you know just look at look at this uh look at this concept art from uh from our boy kinoshida very awesome but also that is just decker like that that is just Blade Runner
5: and he's even named Uh, John Jack Gibson Gibson obviously a reference to Neuromancer author William Gibson no Dave don't
2: say that it's all they'll talk
5: about (laughs) yeah we have a we have a Facebook group Jordan and in the last episode you know like I said we did this overly elaborate narrative sequence written by the original screenwriter of Buckaroo Banzai and we made one offhanded comment to Neuromancer and that's all anybody talked about in the group for like three days was just fucking Neuromancer (laughs)
2: Um, but yeah, this is this is just Blade Runner. And I, I didn't even add it in here, but the the vehicle that he rides around in, it's like it's almost like on the verge of plagiarism. It's just a spinner. It's not it's not inspired by it. It's just a spinner. But it's also really cool. And it's if anything, it's like this is like a, a, an anime Blade Runner is fucking awesome.
5: Yeah, I mean, and what's his face uh, in the third, third, uh, in the third image in the script? This character holding the double barreled shotgun. Oh yeah,
2: he looks he looks like Sting from Dune. From
5: from Dune, yeah, that's just Sting from Dune.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out.
10: Yeah, he's you know, uh, Kojima certainly. He's you know, he's kind of a pastiche expert. He's a he he's a, he's a mashup artist in its own way. And I think that like you know, obviously, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's more fun to like look at his stuff as like. Oh, this is a guy like reinterpreting his favorite stuff or putting new spins on it or commenting on it. Um, uh, you know, rather than like, oh, this guy's just ripping shit off, but um, but yeah, there are some cases where it seems like, man, you were just ripping that off.
5: I mean, I love bootlegs in general. I th- I think that's really interesting how especially, you know, kind of big-budget American movies would come out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then, you know, uh, countries aclo- across the gro- globe would reboot them and remake them in unlicensed or uncopyrighted ways where, like, you know, Lady Terminator, uh, Lady Battle Cop, uh, Terminator 2 Dark Lightning, or whatever the Indian unofficial Terminator sequel I've is. I've heard of that one. Oh, it's crazy. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I love a Turkish Star Wars, like... Um, you know, a uh, message from space, which if you haven't seen, is great. It's just, do you like Star Wars? <laughs> it's, it's Star Wars, but all of the character designs are done by the guy who created Common uh, uh, Rider and Super Sentai, so they look really cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, and it was directed by the guy who directed Battle Royale. So, and it was the most expensive movie made in Japanese history up until that point. So you're like, this is so weird. How this movie has this massive budget and just sucks. <laughs> But I love I love that kind of like it's almost kind of like a, a an ecosystem of this like echo chamber right of kind of like somebody says something and then another person hears it and it's this game of telephone culturally throughout time um and I think that's really interesting and it's fun to see those stories reinterpreted and and remixed and and it's interesting when people are chasing the money version of the story, or when they're really uh, resonating with the visual element of it, or the story and like what it's saying about the human condition and what various foibles and wrinkles the individuals involved bring to that process. Um, it's endlessly fascinating to me. I love, I love bootleg, I love bootleg comics. I got a bunch of weird like Phantom comics from India recently.
2: This discussion will become even more relevant whenever we get to the uh, the Sons of Liberty section. Kojima wrote six chapters worth of story content for this game, but the team was only able to make it through two chapters worth of development after a year and a half before Konami demanded that they wrap production so they could release the game. Kojima and his team quickly rushed through attempting to develop one final chapter to wrap up the story, but were unable to meet the deadline, and in 1988 it was released with a cliffhanger ending. The game didn't sell well. I relate to that a lot. I relate to that idea of like, you start making something and then you're just like, calling dave on the phone you're just like help me this is 40 pages <laughs> please stop me from doing this and then you quickly have to rush to like finish something before you're gonna record it or make it or whatever and then you end up like having to like quickly tack on the thing at the end just to wrap it up because you're like way too overlong and definitely definitely relate to it at this point kojima figured metal gear had just been a one-off However, one day while riding the train home, he ran into an old coworker who had been transferred to another division and discovered that they had developed a sequel to Metal Gear without him called Snake's Revenge that was only released in the US. The coworker told Kojima that the game sucked. It was action-based with no interesting story elements and just didn't feel like a good follow-up to his game. On the train ride home, Kojima thought up an idea for a true sequel to Metal Gear and the next day he pitched it to his bosses. He describes this as the moment that changed the direction of his career forever. However, the sales team at Konami was skeptical about developing another Metal Gear game because the original hadn't sold well in Japan. Kojima and his team traveled to the sales office and spent an entire day convincing them to greenlight the project. And I, I just love the idea that the entire trajectory of Kojima's career from that moment until today was determined and dictated by... He was, like, on a train and some guy's like, oh yeah, they made, like, a shitty sequel to your game. And he was like, fuck that. Like, I like he had this weird like FOMO like he was just like it was not even necessarily that he like loved it and like it was his baby or whatever he kind of never thought about it again after this but when somebody was like oh yeah they uh, they made a sequel to it he was like no I, I'm i going to make a sequel to it and that whole that just that set him on a path of his entire career for the next sev- like few decades uh, this idea of just like getting getting like weirdly jealous of somebody else getting to make the thing instead of him For this game, Kojima and his team wanted to ratchet up the realism. They wanted to make it the most realistic depiction of a secret military organization in video game form. They studied books on military strategies, watched military combat films obsessively, consulted with former military operatives, would go out into the woods and play war games with paintball guns, and even started wearing military fatigues into the office. The game was released on the MSX in 1990 and was a huge financial success despite being released exclusively in Japan. One wonders. Why they made the decision to release it exclusively in Japan, considering the fact that the first game sold very well in the US, but not in Japan, but it's neither here nor there. From here, Kojima oversaw a remake of Snatcher for the PC, with upgraded graphics, full voice acting, and a proper ending. At this time, Kojima, frustrated by working with programmers that couldn't execute his ideas, developed his own programming engine that he could use to personally develop his games and control every aspect. He used this engine to develop his next game, another graphical adventure game called Police Knots. It was a sci-fi buddy cop drama. Did you play that, Jordan?
10: No, I miss Police Knots. Yeah, I would like to. I would like to uh, be a Kojima completist someday, but uh, no, I've only heard of Police Knots.
2: Yeah, Police Knots is like, whereas whereas Snatcher is... Firmly a sort of graphical text adventure in that, you know, you're kind of getting these like very minimally animated um, cut where, you know, story unfolds and then you're able to make decisions and like, you know, go into this room and go into this room. And uh, and then sometimes there's like weird little mini games. Uh, Police Knots is like just a full on like um, anime v- visual novel. Um, so it really is just like watching an anime where you get to like make decisions here and there. Um, it's, uh, it's not quite as cool as snatcher, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's about, it's about a bunch of like space cops.
10: I, I, that's what I would guess based on the name. Yeah. The police <laughs> Nazi
2: very from the, from the man who named somebody heart man.
10: Oh, yeah. Die, yeah. Hartman and Die Hardman. Uh, the dude. The, hey, the dude can name shit. The dude can name shit. At this time in the early 90s, Kojima had become captivated
2: by the idea of 3D video games and wanted to make a Metal Gear game for the 3DO. However, he got wind of a new video game console that was on the verge of release with far superior hardware, the Sony PlayStation. He immediately pitched his bosses on the idea of starting development on a Metal Gear game for the console. Kojima recruited a designer working at Konami named Yoji Shinkawa to help him design the look of a new Metal Gear world in the third dimension. He would go on to basically define the look of the series, and any art you've seen from any post-Metal Gear 2 game was done by him. They began development on a new game, Metal Gear Solid.
5: That's the thing that's really interesting to me, that, like, as the game, it's kind of this weird, like... He's, like, figuring it out, you know? Like, the name isn't right at first, and the, the like, Solid Snake character is, like, there, but he's just Snake, and, like, all of these different, like, little puzzle pieces, like, over whatever, five, eight years, whatever it is, start, like, slotting into place. That's a really interesting way of kind of discovering your idea. You know what I mean? Like, slowly, like, sharpening it and bringing it into focus.
2: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that it sort of is built from, like, here's this weird like half finished project project like finish this like to make your to make your magnum opus and this thing that you spend like most of your career on and it sort of becomes this deeply in this deeply inward personal project that has a lot of your own personal philosophies and your exploration of 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 ideologies and philosophies to have to come from like a thing that you didn't actually create yourself you it was like here's this weird like half finished military game, like figure out how to like make this a thing is really is really interesting.
10: I you know I'm a big fan of the Souls games of the Souls franchise and that's 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 basically the story of how those started. Uh, you know the their great genius is this guy Hidetaka Miyazaki and uh, he worked for this comp- you know from software it's just this company that cranked out stuff without a lot of uh, quality control and they had a uh, you know an RPG that wasn't working and they like hey you lowly lowly guy who's you know kind of at the bottom of the ladder uh uh put all your weird ideas into this as long as it ships by a certain date and then it you know kind of changed video games uh uh yeah so it's it's, it's interesting those are those are two very similar stories
2: now everything is either uh a metroidvania or souls-like
10: right yes it can be both too you can be a metroidvania souls-like or a bullet hell
5: <laughs> i feel like this is also like you know the the uh the narrative that we're on with Metal Gear becoming Metal Gear, it's like congealing, it's becoming its thing. But I feel like maybe if people don't know what Bubble is or aren't aware that there's this comic book version of it that's coming out, maybe if you want to talk about that a little bit and kind of give the the legions of listeners
10: <laughs> yes i would be happy to address the legions um yeah so i uh i did a uh or i created i guess i should say i did it with a lot of other cool people uh, a podcast called bubble in 2018 it's a sci-fi comedy it's about all these you know kind of goofy ill-equipped hipsters who uh, live in this kind of near future bubble city that's kind of like Logan's run and um uh, yeah and the, they're all part of this kind of life and death gig economy where they have to kill monsters to survive um yeah and uh and the graphic novel adaptation of that story is coming out on uh, July 13th available for pre-order now um I wrote it with a great comedy writer named Sarah Morgan and uh the art is by Tony Cliff who does the Delilah Dirk series. Uh, colors by Natalie Reese, who does the Dungeon Critters series, and yeah, it was—it's so fun. It's just all the stuff I like. It's. Uh... It's got a ton of, ton of jokes, it's got gore, it's got monsters. If you know Tony's uh, work, you know that the fighting is super awesome. And uh, yeah, Natalie's colors are really beautiful. They really like, it's, you know, a lot of it takes place on kind of an alien planet and she makes it look so like trippy and psychedelic. And uh, yeah, it's just, I, I'm a, I've been a comics kid since, uh, since you know, uh, since I could read. So like getting to do it was, was such a thrill.
2: Well, uh, Bubble bubble definitely got me through many a commute uh, back in the day, driving from Burbank to Beverly Hills.
10: Oh, yeah, that's a commute. That's quite a commute.
2: Kojima once again delved into research to make the game as realistic as possible, working with American SWAT teams and going on training missions. Metal Gear Solid was released in September of 1998 and featured the franchise's signature stealth gameplay upgraded to 3D. It also featured an opening credit sequence that was more reminiscent of an American action film than a video game. And while the previous entries in the franchise had done well, this game put the franchise on the map and became a smash success. Not only that, but it defined the stealth game genre, and many would go on to imitate it for years to come. It also firmly cemented Kojima's reputation as an innovative auteur in video games. Anyone who's played through the game remembers the eureka moment when you finally figured out, likely by consulting a strategy guide, that the way you beat Psychomantis is by unplugging your controller from Player One slot and plugging it into Player Two slot, so he can no longer read your mind and anticipate your moves.
5: I never made it that far into the game. I I, I loved what I've played of the game, but I never made it that I never made it to Psychomantis. <laughs> Because my next door neighbor as a kid had it. So I would like play it at his house and it was this kind of like, oh, I got to fucking sneak around. Oh, what? It's time to go. No, I'm not done sneaking around.
2: Yeah, that is kind of weird how when you're when you're younger, um, I think I think as you get into like becoming a teenager, you start to become more sort of aware of like, oh, this game like has like a like I need to finish it. Like there's these goals and I need to like get to the end of it. But when you're younger, like even when it's a story based game with like a like, you know, that you can beat and it has like a, a path and you're getting to a goal, you can end up just like playing like one stage of it and like never really going past that. And you don't even think about it. You're not like, oh, like I suck at this. You're just like, oh, I just I'm playing Metal Gear Solid and it's just me. I mean, I'm on level one. And I'm just playing this level over and over again. Did you jump on the Metal Gear Solid uh, train when it came out, Jordan?
10: Uh, Yeah, I've, I've played all of them except four. I've played all of them except four, which is I think called Guns of the Patriots. Great name. And oh, and I guess I haven't played the PSP ones. There's some like canonical PSP Metal Gear Solid games that I have not played, but yeah, I've I've played them all, and I I I really like them. Um, yeah, I definitely like have super fond memories of all those games, and like looking forward to the next one, and uh, obviously the like you know character fake out in number two is such a huge deal. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah a lot of good memories with those games, and yeah, and and you know and and, and like. Kojima stuff. They're like frustrating in some ways and they're, you know, uh, p- poorly conceived in some ways, but they're always interesting. They're always fun. Um, yeah. And they always have uh, long ass cutscenes.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, th- yeah. Similar thing. Um, I, uh, the Metal Gear Solid was definitely like a big thing amongst friends and like my cousins or whatever at the time. Um, so I definitely played it a lot, but I don't think it really. F- fully clicked to me like whenever I played Metal Gear Solid it was for me it was like a fairly casual play playing kind of like Dave and I kind of didn't really think of the game as much more of just like it's just another game on this on this new PlayStation that I just got for Christmas or whatever um and I don't think it fully clicked to me like, oh, this this, like, this like, is a franchise that I'm like a fan of until part two, which we will, we, we will be getting to right now. While rumors of the original PlayStation's release are what inspired the development of Metal Gear Solid, by the time the game was actually released, there were already murmurs of Sony's next console being released in a few short years. So with the success of the game, Konami sent Kojima right to work on a sequel for the PlayStation 2. And this time he'd have a budget of $10 million to play with. I was kind of blown back by that seeing the scope of that time frame where he like he pitched Metal Gear Solid when there was rumors of the PlayStation one coming out. And by the time it came out, there was already a PlayStation two on the horizon. And so that, that's just I, it's crazy to me that like it's just to look at that scope and just be like, man, like video games just fucking take forever to develop. In the late 90s, Kojima saw the U.S. government shutting down Napster. Kojima thought it was very strange and funny that the government from one single country was able to control how the entire world shared music, and it inspired him to create the Patriots in Metal Gear Solid 2, a team of shadowy politicians who secretly orchestrate and control every major world event. Shout out to the connection there, for the, the Napster episode. We did a whole musical episode about the rise and fall of Napster. It was our It was our season one finale.
10: No oh, nice. I didn't know uh, I didn't know there I didn't know that Napster was the inspiration for that. That's interesting
2: indeed. And uh, yeah, looks like uh yeah, Kojima was sitting there just being you know, he was right there along with us, except for whereas we were just like, oh man, now I can never download weird like independent parody bands who like falsely label themselves as weird owl to trick you into downloading them.
3: Corky and the
10: juice pigs,
2: yeah, exactly. He was like, I have an idea. The plot of Metal Gear Solid 2 was also heavily inspired by the book The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, a book where Dawkins actually invented the concept of memes. And you know, in case you in, in case you only think of memes as, you know, those those things you see on Facebook, which is like a picture with some text above it that, you know, presents some kind of relatable message. Uh, this is this is the true definition of, of memes in sort of the grander scope.
5: An element of culture or a system of behavior that may be considered to be past from one individual to another, by non-genetic means, especially imitation. In MGS2, Kojima wanted
2: to explore the idea of memes and how ideas and behaviors are spread from person to person. The philosophy of the selfish gene as well as the themes that MGS2 explores put forth that everything is a meme, ideas, culture, art, and even language. Even colonialism can be viewed as a massive metatextual meme, and the Western globalization of the world that has slowly been happening since two turns of a century ago where the United States spread its own culture to other countries through corporate homogenization and war is basically the mother of all memes. Kojima thought this was very interesting, and he used these concepts to make this game and, more importantly, to appeal to Western audiences. Packing his games with American action movie references was essentially a way of repackaging the American culture that had been forced on the rest of the world and feeding it back to U.S. audiences. He was weaponizing memes to spread his stories in the Western gaming market. Kojima was obsessed with the idea of passing on his ideas and having a cultural impact on the world before he died. This essentially became his answer to the question of where you go after you've achieved your second act. At a certain point, it's no longer about accomplishing the goals. It becomes a race to fill the world with as many of your ideas as possible and spread them as far and wide as possible before you die, so that your visions will continue growing and replicating from generation to generation long after you're gone. In this way, he even saw his own work as a meme. And you know, this goes back to the the conversation about bootlegs and this idea that you can think of bootlegs as just this weird knockoff way of turning a quick buck by capitalizing off of a popular idea in another country where, you know, the roving eye of American copyright lawyers is just kind of, kind of not going to notice it. But you can also, in a a more kind of philosophical way, you can see it as this progenization of ideas that you create an idea and it resonates with people in a way where they want to become a part of it. And they want to sort of adopt it as they want to be involved in the story in some kind of uh, metatextual way. Hip hop artists sampling old funk and blues records and then, you know, other hip hop artists sampling other hip hop artists and this sort of like recycling of musical ideas. It's all tied up in this idea of like wanting to be part of the musical idea. Like I want to, I want to inherit this little riff from a jazz record. Uh, I want to, I want to inherit this and I want to like reinterpret it and become a part of the lineage of it. And I think that the similar thing can be said, about, uh, you know, bootlegging things and taking things and reinterpreting them in this sort of slightly legally shady way. The game is about exploring personal identity and what it means to be a person, whether you are truly a unique individual or just a collection of assembled ideas and memories that may or may not belong to you and may or may not be real. Even the main character of MGS2, Raiden, serves as a synecdoche for this idea of personal identity. He was once a man, but most of his body has now been replaced by robotic parts. Very little of his previous body is still left. Throughout the game, he struggles with his own identity, and in the climax of the story, learns that much of what he believes about himself and his mission is a lie. So, if little is left of his physical body, and most of his memories are fake, then what is really left of him? Is he still Raiden? Was there ever really a Raiden? And who is he now? Snake, disguised as a different character named Pliskin for much of the game, speaks as a mouthpiece for Kojima, assuring Raiden that we're more than just our physical bodies, our genetic makeup, and even our beliefs. And, uh, spoiler alert, because this is literally the end of the game. Life isn't just
11: about passing on your genes. We can leave behind much more than just DNA. Through speech, music, literature, and movies, what we've seen, heard, felt, anger, joy, and sorrow. These are the things I will pass on. That's what I live for. We need to pass the torch and let our children read our messy and sad history by its light. We have all the magic of the digital age to do that with. The human race will probably come to an end sometime, and new species may rule over this planet. Earth may not be forever, but we still have the responsibility to leave what traces of life we can. Building the future and keeping the past alive are one and the same thing.
5: This feels like the end of like one of the filler episodes of an anime that's like about 45 episodes into a 50-something episode run. Where they're just like, fuck, we gotta just chew up time until we can get to the end of the series where we actually will spend our money in the big climactic showdown fight. Like that, the existential montage of traffic going into the distance and birds playing with little kids. It's just like I've I've seen many series where this is just like we're going to chew up five minutes of screen time with just bullshit like this.
2: Yeah, it definitely feels reminiscent of like a, a, just a long sequence in a an off episode of Full Metal Alchemist or something. The game was another huge hit, and at this point Kojima had been upgraded to near rockstar status in the world of video game developers. And not only was he one of the only game developers, alongside the likes of people like Cliffy B and, uh, I guess basically no one else, to actually be a known name amongst casual video game players, he was also doing it without compromise. His games were pure, autorial expressions of his personal vision. And yet, seemingly at the height of his success, with nowhere to go but up, Kojima had already started to hit that existential plateau, and for the remainder of his involvement with the Metal Gear franchise, the games he developed would serve as sort of a mind map of his slow drift into the second act malaise. See what I did there? Talking about talking about second acts, and then we go into the second act?
5: One of the questions I had was, like, do you find the aspects of Kojima's games that are this kind of, like, weird... And you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but these, these weird, unvarnished or unpolished areas, is that the draw for you or is that a part of that you kind of are just that that's the thing that you kind of like tolerate in order to get to another area that's more interesting to you
10: yeah um yeah you know I think it's just kind of part of the experience um you know Death Stranding took me a long time to get into I was like actively mad at the game for the first (laughs) five hours I don't know if you've played it or not but the first bit of that game is such a weird slog and like you know, the plot is so incomprehensible and, you know, uh, your character is just tripping a lot, (laughs) you know, it's just a lot of tripping and falling. Um, but yeah, but I think that like over the course of the game, I really grew to love it. And I'm like, okay, like this is a game about how, how modern life is frustrating. Like modern life is very frustrating um you know uh, and you know obviously like the shit from the game became very real during the pandemic everybody lives in a little uh you know in a walled-off city and uh delivery guys risk their life for um you know to bring everybody stuff and we're all connected only through the internet so yeah i'm like okay like I will give that frustrating bit a pass because it seems to be servicing this like bigger, you know, theme of, you know, here is, here's the parts of modern life that are shitty and frustrating. Um, Yeah. So it's kind of one of those things where, um, yeah, I'm just kind of like, you gotta, you gotta prepare yourself for the ride. You're like something, you know, I'm trying to think of a good movie example. Is there like a director who you're like, not all of this is gonna work, but it's gonna be cool. I'm gonna like it. Like, I would rather see this than a, you know, four quadrant big studio movie that you know just does it by the numbers. Um, yeah, let I me mean, like a Cronenberg, maybe. You know, um, yeah. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. And 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 I think you know they always get fun. Like they're not always fun all the time, but they always like are more fun than they are frustrating.
5: Yeah, I kind of feel, I feel that way about Mark Z. Danielewski. Like, his novel, House of Leaves, is maybe my favorite novel. It's great. And everything else I've read by him, which is not his entire oeuvre, but I've read uh, 50 Year Sword and Only Revolutions, and I fucking hated both of them! And, like, the things about him that are interesting to me are the the, like, formal aspect of breaking up text and doing these kind of, like, strange uh you know uh, things you can only do in a book and like that's the whole idea of the book but you know 50 year sword and only revolutions are just like they're not enjoyable to read they're like these weird like you know only revolutions is supposed to be a Uh, uh, a story about these two characters going on a road trip together, and you can read it from either direction. So if you start on one side, you're reading it from the male's perspective going to the end. If you flip the book over, you read it from the female perspective going the other way. And it's a cool idea, right? That's a great idea. The issue being that it's like weird epic poems, and like you're not quite sure what's happening all the time, and like It's, it's like he like read a Nabokov book and was just like, yes, weird epic poems. Let's do that. And it's like, "Ah, this is not, it's just not as fun. But every time I'm not going to lie, I'm going to read his other books too, because the experience of House of Lee's was so great that it's like, fuck it. I got to read these. I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to see what he's excited about at least, you know? And that's kind of how I feel about Kojima too, where it's like, I haven't played all the games mostly because of the time commitment um and the weird elements are kind of like really bro <laughs> really she breathes through her skin all right um but i do enjoy the aspects that i enjoy about them and find myself oh yeah that's kind of cool these good do- up to that that's interesting
10: yeah another there's an interesting mechanic in 5 uh metal gear solid 5 where Uh, you know you find animals in the environment and you can sneak up to them and attach a balloon to them and the balloon whisks them up in the air and takes them to your base now i never figured out what that did why i would want to do it what yeah what effect it had on my stats or the game and i'm like this is such a wacky mechanic, but you know what? It's fun to attach a balloon to a cow and watch it go up (laughs) in the air. So, you know, maybe this doesn't make a shit ton of sense. Maybe it's, you know, it was a, it's an idea that, you know, another game company would have cut, but I'm like, you know, this it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun to watch the animals shoot up in the air and, I'm glad that this, like, nut got to do it.
5: I think there's also something about the fact that he's working in video games, which has a much more expansive canvas. It's, you know, you're, you're living with the thing as opposed to just a two-hour window of a movie. Where, like, if there was a scene in a movie where a character just randomly ran up and attached a balloon to a fucking cow and then it whisked up into the air... That would be the thing that everyone would talk about. Like, why the fuck was that scene there? Because the unit of, of delivery is so measurable and digestible. And it's we, we have such a codified rubric around what makes a three-act good movie, in air quotes. But because these are, you know, 35, 40-hour epic experiences that you could just live in indefinitely if you wanted to, there's this other component where you can't quite compare it to really anything else, you know? Almost kind of like a novel, I guess. You know that you live; it's something you live with for a while. Yeah, and i I, I kind
2: of love I kind of love stuff like that. Like when it does happen, sometimes stuff like that does happen in movies, um, and and uh, and and TV, and it's there's this uh, there's this there's this one moment that always sticks out to me from an episode of Erie Indiana, where they are so there's the two main characters. It's uh, it's the the kid played by Omri Katz named Marshall and then the, his friend who's like a little younger than him named Simon and they're the two like Mulder and Scully like investigators of these weird paranormal things that happen in this little town and there's a scene where they're just like in at Simon's house and they're talking about whatever the thing is happening in the episode whatever the weird paranormal thing is I forget which episode it is and uh you, you can sort of like hear in the background kind of like, w- you know, w- with a low pass, like some some kind of set muffled sound coming from another room where you can kind of hear some music and you can hear like a woman like kind of giggling flirtatiously and then like just some murmuring. And uh, Marshall says, oh, it sounds like your parents are having a party. And then Simon's like, oh, my mom's not here. And then it just moves on. It never acknowledges it they just go on with the rest of the episode. It has nothing to do with the episode. And like, the, I, I, I don't think I noticed that when I was a kid, but I, I had watched the show again recently, uh, last several years. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And I like rewound it a couple times of like, did I miss something? And I just like, I, st- I thought about that for like hours. I was like, what? I was like imagining what it was, like what they were trying to say with that. And then I was like imagining like what the decision making was behind putting that moment in the show especially considering that it's like a kid show that was on Nickelodeon and it's like consumed me for like for for hours I was like what the fuck was that um and uh and and like you said Dave I, I you know there's there's a lot there's a there's freedom to do that because because the as much as that I liked that it's also because of those preconceived notions of how movies and TV shows work it almost kind of like it's interesting but it also you know, another way, it almost kind of takes you out of it a little bit where then you focus on that and you're like, what the hell? It, like, it, it's a bigger deal to you. So it almost maybe interrupts the experience a little bit. Whereas in a video game, you can do something weird like that and it definitely does stick out to you. But also you're like, you accept it more and you're just like, well, that was a f- weird fucking thing that I just saw. Uh, all right. Now I guess I'll just move on. Like, it, so it's almost like. Video games are like the medium of video games are just it's more organic to do strange little idiosyncratic things like that in a way that's a little bit more a part of the experience. Um, and another another, um, you know, we we brought up, you know, you brought up Cronenberg, uh, you brought up uh, Daniel Ofsky, um, another sort of parallel to Kojima stuff um, that we've we talk about a lot both on the show and off the show and we did a whole episode about it is uh you know the 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 Wachowski sisters and um uh, we did a whole episode about speed racer um and i feel like there's very strong parallels between those two things where we talk a lot about we talked a lot about on that episode and we talked a lot about we talk a lot in person just about the fact that like their movies have that feeling to them where they they take huge swings and sometimes they miss the mark completely But you sort of like allow for those because sometimes they knock it out of the park and you kind of like you take the you take the swing, you take the hits with the misses because maybe they fail on this one weird little thing that they tried and you're like, oh, that didn't work. But then like the next thing is like, oh, shit, like nobody's ever done that in a fucking movie before. And it's like it's worth the uh, the mistakes and the misses. Um, And I, I, I I think definitely Kojima is like that's he's the video game version of that.
3: The following is a message from the Central Intelligence Agency. Hi, I'm Gus Funderson, Deputy Director of the CIA. A number of rumors have started circling lately regarding the motion picture Norbit and the agency's alleged involvement. Rumors like, Norbit doesn't exist, and... It's a false flag, and they're just trying to recapture escaped MK-Ultra super soldiers. These rumors are of course very false, and also uh, quite silly. The motion picture Norbit is definitely real, and was released in 2007. That's on Wikipedia, and you can't lie there. Now we here at the CIA have had our share of oopsies, and the MK Ultra program did exist, but it definitely did not create any super soldiers who have gone rogue and are wandering the earth searching for purpose in a mad world. No that's patently ridiculous. It was mostly about giving acid to gorillas and having guys stare at goats. They even made a movie about it with George Clooney's. To help clear things up we here at the CIA have arranged for the motion picture in the orbit, which is <laughs> extremely real to be streaming on Home Box Office Maximum. So go ahead and click on it, and I guarantee that 102 minutes later, you will remember having seen the motion picture, Norbit. Thanks for your time, and don't worry about Norbit. It's real, folks. The proceeding was a message from the Central Intelligence Agency.
5: Even out here in the vacuum of space, there's no way of escaping the punishing stranglehold of capitalism. Man, you'd think having a super-intelligent ship like this would mean space travel would go a lot
10: faster, huh? You'd think, but you'd be wrong. You wouldn't believe the amount of money I've spent on space travel in the last few years. Yeah? Yeah, but that's because I'm developing a show for, uh... Ah, I can't talk about it. Developing a TV show for an extraterrestrial production company, eh? That's fine. Well, thanks for having me on your show, guys. It was definitely only the third worst spacecraft pool I've been on. Thanks? Oh, it's no slight against you guys. It's just a fact that carpooling sucks, and carpooling in space double sucks. That
2: is true. Good luck on your alien development meeting, or
10: whatever it is. Shh. Space NDAs are even more intense than Earth ones.
5: Copy that.
2: Act 2. A World Gone Soft. After the success of MGS2 in the early 2000s, Kojima went on to develop tons of Metal Gear spin-offs that we won't go into here in the interest of time, as well as be involved in a handful of other non-Metal Gear games like Zone of the Enders, Boktai, and Castlevania Lords of Shadow, which ended up being the best-selling game in the Castlevania franchise. MGS2 was supposed to be Kojima's magnum opus and swan song for the Metal Gear franchise, and he had announced stepping away from the franchise for someone else to take it over, for his meme to spread to another person but he was so unhappy with what Konami was planning for MGS3 that he decided to step back in and direct the game himself. Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater explores the adventures of Big Boss, the original villain of the first Metal Gear game, and how he slowly goes from a well-intentioned if not slightly morally gray hero to the later villain we meet in the earlier games. Hmm, a young, optimistic company man slowly hardened into a cynical shell of himself by the transformative process of years in the trenches sacrificing his mind and body for what he believed to be the greater good at the hands of his soul-sucking and uncaring overlords? Possibly foreshadowing of what is to come? Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots is the most troublesome of entries into the franchise. By this point, Kojima had been roped into doing another game two games after when he wanted to retire. And also, the MGS franchise was turning into a major cash cow for Konami and therefore was under much more scrutiny. Kojima bowed to pressure to add in more features and address things being requested by the fans of the franchise, which he did which could have been seen as him compromising. But also, of all the games in the franchise, this one ended up being the most indulgent in terms of Kojima really delving into the story and developing extremely long cutscenes between gameplay that almost make you forget at some point that you're playing a game and think you're watching a movie. It holds the record for the longest video game cutscene in history at 27 minutes long. The game was released on June 12th of 2008, was another massive success and has sold over 6 million copies to date. Kojima wanted out of the franchise and spoke publicly many times about how he wished he could just be free of the burden of MGS and work on something new and exciting, a simpler game. He was specifically interested in doing something for the Wii, but Konami wanted more games, and they wanted them to be done by Kojima. This was the beginning of tensions between Kojima and Konami. At one point, Kojima jokingly posted that fans should write into the CEO of Konami and beg him to let Kojima stop making Metal Gear games. However, at this point, Kojima was still a hot commodity and was promoted to Vice President and Corporate Officer of Konami's Digital Entertainment Division in 2011. He was now an institution at Konami and a globally celebrated megastar of AAA video games, all while making strange, personal, and incredibly idiosyncratic games that were a singular expression of his inner self. In his new role, Kojima oversaw the development of a new game engine called the Fox Engine. In August of 2012, to show off this new engine, he released a trailer for a Metal Gear demo called Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes. It was teased as a prologue for an upcoming Metal Gear Solid 5. In December of that year, seemingly unrelated at this time, a trailer was leaked for a new game by an unknown indie developer called Moby Dick Studios called The Phantom Pain. The game was being directed by an unknown French video game developer named Joaquin Mogren, a man who appeared in interviews covered from head to toe in bandages as a result of being badly burned in a fire.
12: Alright, I'm here with Moby Dick Studios' head CEO, Joaquin Mogren. Hello, Jeff. Joaquin, thank you for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me. It's uh, very good to see you. First of all, I should ask, uh, what happened to your face? Are you okay? Yes, uh, I had a little accident, uh, but I should be good by uh, GDC coming up. You know, a lot of people are wondering who you really are, uh, what Moby Dick Studios is working on. Um, What are you going to tell us more about The Phantom Pain? Are you going to be able to share more tonight? Yes, I plan uh, on attending. uh, this show uh, coming up in San Francisco, uh, but I don't have uh, anything uh, to show today, unfortunately. Okay, um, let me ask you a few things though about uh, Phantom Pain, because as you know, when we announced this at the BGAs, there was a lot of speculation about what this game actually is. Um, is it a next-generation game? That's something a lot of people ask me on Twitter, saying, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, Keeley, is this is this a current-gen game, is it next-gen? Is this a PlayStation 4 game? Unfortunately, uh, I cannot confirm that. OK. Um, can you maybe confirm that you guys have development kits, at least, for next-generation systems? I'm so sorry, Jeff. Uh, I can, uh, unfortunately, not confirm that either. All right, well, this is going well. Um, What what can you tell us then at at GDC? What are you going to show from the game? This year's uh, GDC show, I will have a new Phantom Pain trailer, and I can confirm that it will answer all of your questions. uh, Answer all the questions. So uh, we're not getting a lot of answers tonight, but at the Game Developers Conference later this month, there'll be no more secrets about this game. Yes. I guess one thing I will say here is that, you know, we're sitting here in a hotel room. Uh, we were asked to come interview you, find out something about the game. How do I not know this is some elaborate ruse? Well, unfortunately, I cannot uh, show too much. But uh, for you, Jeff, I can show you some new images uh, and uh, some new stuff here on uh, my iPad that okay. uh, hopefully you'll enjoy. OK, so you're going to prove that this is real. So what what are we seeing here? This is some, some concept art from from the game? Yeah concept art there's the whale it looks like uh oh wow those look like some new screens oh the main character so the, these are screenshots i noticed there's a, a fox engine logo in the corner so this game is running on the fox engine
5: this is so incredibly my shit. this is just like i can't even i can't even com- communicate how incredibly up my fucking alley this is
2: yeah so uh you know just to provide context so that that interview um uh, between uh, Jeff Keighley and then, you know, the, the guy Joaquin Mogren, he's like a mummy. He's like completely wrapped from head to toe in bandages where you can't see his face. You can just see his eyes and his mouth. You know, at the time, this was uh, completely, un- the, the, this was just a thing that happened. Like nobody had any idea what this was. It was just like, oh, this weird game is coming out from this new studio. Like that was just a thing that just, Happened in the ether and nobody knew that it had anything to do with, with metal gear at all. Um, But I kind of love, I just love, you know, similar to like what we talked about with Kojima and just like the bombastic nature of his storytelling. I just love that. Like this whole sort of kayfabe or hoax thing that they did. It's unconcerned with whether or not you believe it's true or not. Like it's very like openly ridiculous. And it's, like, somewhere between a genuine attempt at a real hoax and a very obvious just promotional thing where it's understood that it's fake. It's, like, somewhere between it. They really are kind of, like, presenting this as real, but they, like, don't care if you believe it or not, which I love.
5: Especially the the name, you know, Joachim Mogren is obviously an anagram for uh, Hideo Kojima the the bandages the the actor like all of it i just i'm just like man oh man if fortune ever favors old davy bakes this is 100% some bullshit i want to do <laughs> like i, I want to get a fucking lion's head fucking surgically grafted onto my body and like do interviews with that from the hospital to promote a fucking movie and then tear it off and be like, suckers, it was me this whole time. I wasn't a fucking weird liger beast. I wasn't King from Tekken this whole time. <laughs> he was my main, him and Law. I always played I always played King and I got my ass beat because that character is really slow And Law when I just spam that backflip kick thing and.
2: Yoshimitsu, bitch. Nah, it's
5: all about a king, baby. A fucking alien robot samurai? It's try hard, bro. It's try hard. It's try hard. It's try hard. You know what's cool? A guy with a leopard's head. Also, I don't think he's even like an animal hybrid. I think canonically in the universe, he's just a dude wearing a leopard's head.
2: Yeah, he's like a a professional wrestler.
5: I love it. I kind of wish he was half leopard, half man, but whatever. It's fine.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to we're going to talk about this in a second and sort of get into some of this stuff. But uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, you know, as you kind of said, like, oh, this is this is this is my shit. This is I love this, um you know, this this whole thing. It's really cool because once, like I said before, it's like it's like unconcerned with whether or not you genuinely think it's real. Like they 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 kind of like didn't telegraph that it was just a weird promotional thing. But they also didn't go to great pains to, like, conceal that it was. It was just kind of like, here's a weird thing. And, like, whatever you think about this is whatever you think about this. And the the metatextual nature of it and how the layers of whatever is trying to be done here are... They don't fit together in some big thematic way. Like, there definitely are a lot of thematic things happening, But there's also just a lot of weird little like janky aspects of it that some of the things are like these weird little like loose ends and it doesn't line up in this perfect way where it feels like this grand performance art statement deeply couched in kayfabe. It's just like this weird attempt at doing these like these strange ideas just out in public in the open experimenting with ideas, um, which I really like. It's, It's really interesting. As the trailer and these interviews started to make their rounds, eagle-eyed fans began to point out that the trailer for The Phantom Pain looked very similar to Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes and that Joaquin was an anagram for Kojima. And, you know, the thing you kind of miss in the from watching the the little interview we just watched, the thing you can't see if you're listening, is at the very end, he's kind of like showing him screenshots from the game and they have Moby Dick Studios' uh watermark in the corner and then he, sc- he scrolls to one still and... And it has the Fox engine watermark on it, which the Fox engine is the is the game engine that uh, Hideo Kojima oversaw development of at Konami as sort of the new game engine that they were going to use for like all of their games moving forward, a proprietary game engine. And whenever whenever Jeff Keighley points that out, uh, Joaquin like goes, he gets wide eyed. He goes, oh, no. And like it it just cuts to black.
5: Is that is the person playing? Joachim or Joachim Mogren there is that a person we should know like because it's not Hideo Kojima like is it is that an actor like is that I mean obviously it's a person playing a character but like who is that person do we know I think it's just a random actor I gotta know more man I gotta interview that guy I wanna know what his audition process was like
2: in March of 2013 it was revealed that Joachim Mogren and Moby Dick Studios were an elaborate hoax and the Phantom Pain was in fact actually Metal Gear Solid 5 the Phantom Pain in August of 2014, the famed PT, literally playable teaser, demo dropped on digital stores. The playable demo was shrouded in mystery and full of Kojima's signature crypticness, and upon release, nobody had any idea what game it was supposed to be. And while Kojima intended for it to take about a week for players to solve all the mysteries of the demo, it took fans only a couple of hours to unlock all the secrets and discover that it was a teaser. For a Kojima Productions-led new Silent Hill sequel called Silent Hills, starring Norman Reedus, the game would have been co-directed by Kojima and Guillermo del Toro, and was promised to be the franchise's return to form, and fans were excited.
5: This story is also fascinating to me. That like, if anybody's unfamiliar, Silent Hill is a uh, long-running horror franchise game um, series, and they you know released a couple installments that weren't as popular. The franchise, their movie came out, the the franchise, the movie wasn't that fidelitous to the source material, the f- The franchise had kind of lagged a little bit, and this was going to be their big return to form. They were going to hire, you know, Guillermo del Toro and Hideo Kojima to direct this game, and it was going to be huge. They made a, t- a teasered video game, basically. It's a fully playable trailer narrative sequence. Norman Reedus was the star of the game, was going to be the game star of the game. And which we honestly, we could do a whole episode just on the fallout from this and Silent Hills and what why it never came to be. But the short and quick story is the game gets canceled. It it never comes out. And this trailer becomes a collector's item because then it gets pulled from the PlayStation store. So people start selling old PlayStation um uh old playstations that has the game already downloaded on it and that's the only way you can play it now is by buying an old PlayStation that somebody physically downloaded it on and hasn't deleted it it's such a weird trippy story
2: yeah and unfortunately uh I I never I never played PT I never got to play PT and uh yeah you' it's, it just doesn't exist um you can only play it like you said if you have a PlayStation 4 that has it already installed on it even if you even if you bought the game but it's not downloaded onto your system you can't re-download it so the only people that can play it are people that have it on their hard drives and so uh they'll they'll sell uh at the time they were selling these for like thousands of dollars on ebay and now they still go for like 500 bucks um you know which is still a good chunk of change for a used playstation 4 um
5: I'm going to look up and see how expensive it is right now. Right now, there's one available on eBay for $500. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's not crazy, but also it's a PS4 for $500. Crazy, 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 crazy.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this is and and similar things like this have happened before, not under these circumstances, but, you know, like infamously there was a there was a side scrolling beat em up Scott Pilgrim versus the World video game uh, that was released exclusively on um, digital stores uh PlayStation uh, the PSN store uh, Xbox Live so on and so forth and it was it was a it was a game that was released as a tie in to the movie um, but it was it was a full featured completely standalone side scrolling beat em up game kind of like uh, uh, Double Dragon or Streets of Rage, um, and it was uh, the 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 game's uh, direction and um, its graphics were uh, done by Paul Robertson, who is this pixel artist um, who does a lot of stuff for um, Adult Swim, a lot of their like interstitials, and he did these viral videos back in the day. Um, where he would, like, create animated, like, fictional video games, um, which is kind of how he got the job. Um, and then he ended up going on to do more games. But uh, he he had done all the art and the direction for this game. And um, eventually, at some point, the licensing for the the property, for Scott Pilgrim, ran out. And so these these digital stores could no longer stock the game anymore because they didn't have the license for it. And it was sort of deemed as like uh, it was sort of deemed as like um, not worth it to renew the licensing because Scott Pilgrim notoriously was this pretty big financial flop. Um, And there was really no reason to pay a licensing fee to re-license the property for the game, to be able to sell it. So instead, they just pulled it from all stores. So this game that was made just literally was not available anymore. You just you couldn't get it unless you had it downloaded on your on your device the same as as this and these these stories are kind of like they're kind of uh they kind of speak on this larger issue which is this idea of you know living in a in our current world of the cloud where we essentially rent everything now we'll pay full purchase price for things like games and music and software but in reality the way that it works is we are sort of just renting it we're we're just getting it on our on our computer or our playstation or whatever it is as this download there's no physical copy of it and if those companies ever decide to just pull it from those stores on a whim nobody has access to it anymore and there's there's a lot of discourse that goes on specifically with gamers about this idea of um uh you know the the death of ownership in media where we kind of don't own our our stuff anymore. We don't own our games and our movies and our music. We we just rent it from companies through the cloud and so that gives them a lot of power to kind of take it away from us. The Full Ground Zeroes was released in 2014. Behind the scenes this was because MGS5 was taking forever and kept experiencing delays and Konami told Kojima that his production company needed to release something in order to recoup some of the massive costs MGS5 was generating. As a result, they rushed out this short prologue, and as such, they were charging 30 bucks for what was basically a demo for MGS5, which fans were puzzled and kind of annoyed about. Perhaps well aware that the game was acting as a bookend to his own time developing Metal Gear games as well as being at Konami, He packed it with the final flourishes and punctuation marks to the themes he had been exploring in every other MGS game and in his entire career up to that point. It was no accident that the farcical indie developer he had concocted to promote the game in secret was called Moby Dick Studios, and MGS5 was packed full of symbolic allusions to the book and its themes. In the beginning of the game, a character appears to Big Boss as he wakes up from a coma in a hospital room. The man is covered from head to toe in bandages, just like Joaquin Mogren. When Big Boss asks who he is, he replies, Call me Ishmael, the very first line of Moby Dick. Also, certain helicopter pilots have the call sign Queequeg, which is the name of one of Ishmael's compatriots as he sails with Captain Ahab in search of Moby Dick. Similarly, some of the pilots have the call sign Pequod, which is the name of Captain Ahab's ship. At one point, Psychomantis takes the form of a giant flaming whale, obviously alluding to the white whale in Moby Dick and the main character himself, Big Boss, becomes known as Ahab. But as we come to learn, the Big Boss we've been playing for the entire game isn't actually the real Big Boss. He is a trusted medic that fell into a coma after an explosion, and during the coma received plastic surgery and hypnotherapy to look like and think he was Big Boss to serve as a decoy, the real Big Boss being Ishmael from the beginning of the game. Moby Dick is about a man becoming consumed by desire for revenge, that he'll go to any length, any excessive extreme, and sacrifice the rest of his life to achieve this revenge. Captain Ahab is a tragic character who gets lost in the futile cycle of revenge and in the process loses out on enjoying the rest of his life. But in reality, it's actually about Ishmael's equally futile pursuit of finding meaning in what Ahab is doing. So in the game, if Big Boss or Snake or Venom Snake is Captain Ahab, endlessly pursuing the desire to destroy his enemies and win his never-ending war campaign, then Kojima himself is Ishmael, represented by the fact that his alter ego Joaquin Magrín appears in interviews covered in bandages, and then the same bandaged man appears in the game referring to himself as Ishmael. And if Big Boss is caught in an endless cycle of revenge against his enemies, then Kojima is caught in an endless cycle of trying to find meaning in the universe through his games through his observations of Big Boss, Solid Snake, Raiden, and other characters, through his pursuit of accomplishment and praise, through his endless grind. And yet, as we come to find out, Ishmael actually is Big Boss. They are one and the same. And so Kojima is both Ishmael and Ahab, endlessly seeking victory and meaning to no true end, realizing the utter meaninglessness of his pursuit of filling the world with his ideas and leaving behind a legacy. And, you know, aside from the thematic things that I just laid out, um... Going back to what we were talking about with with the uh, with the um, Joachim Mogren stuff, um, I find it really interesting and really fascinating and really fun to kind of experience that uh, this sort of weird kind of lopsided way that he sort of layers on the frosting of his themes and his commentary where it's like, the fictional character that he created to promote the game to say like, oh, this Moby Dick Studios is making this game and the developer is this guy, Joaquin, who is bandaged and then using that bandage, using those bandages as a symbolic way of representing um, the connection between Kojima and the character in the game, Ishmael, who is also bandaged from head to toe, who ends up being big boss. And in this weird way, bridging the gap between this weird hoax promotional stunt that he did and this character in this game to make this connection of like, I am, I, it's, it's almost like the, the, the Trinity, the, the, you know, the, the, the Trinity or whatever, the father, the son and the Holy Ghost. Like there's Big Boss, there's, there's, um, there's Kojima, there is this, you know, Ishmael character. And then the Ishmael character ends up being big boss, the big box character ends up being this different character, and then Kojima is the Ishmael character. And so they're all one and the same. They're all, it's just it, it, it like once that reveal happens, it's like, oh, he's everybody. He is he is both the the person pursuing this goal of victory, of becoming making the greatest video games of all time, or making the most high-selling video games of all time, or whatever the goal is getting universal praise or whatever it is but he's also the person observing that process and trying to find meaning in it
5: well the other thing too that we haven't talked about is that one of the the themes of phantom pain is the futility of all of this and that's also reflected in the game with all of these strange mini missions where you can kind of just grind out you know, sitting on hills and sniping guys or going into these little like barricades and just continually, you know, accruing points or or resources by murdering people. <laughs> and and the reason the game is called The Phantom Pain is because the game low key doesn't have an ending like it ends, but it it doesn't have a in air quotes, traditionally satisfying ending, which is supposed to be a metatextual commentary on this idea that video game players are always looking for the next high which feeds back into your theme of you know the second act and they're they're never fully sated by the experience of playing this game so the the this game is a comment on the fact that it's very difficult to find meaning in these repetitive meaningless tasks which is why the game is filled with repetitive meaningless tasks which also is related to the fact that he views the act of creating video games in this long-running franchise as a never-ending repeated repetitive meaningless task.
2: Yeah, and that that sort of uh he that that philosophy is sort of like forged in this fire of his of the context of his entire career where you can actually see that shaping throughout the games where, you know, kind of as we went over with the with the Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty stuff, you know, he was talking about this idea of You know, he was scared of what, you know, as many of us are, you know, the the fear of death and what happens after you die. And, you know, will people remember me and what kind of legacy will I leave? And, who, you know, will people will people, you know, will the things that I've made still be enjoyed and and revered after I'm gone when I'm no longer here to run out, you know, be out there being like, look at my shit, look at my shit. You know, is it it, will it continue on? And the fear of that uh, sort of presented itself. In this idea where he had become fascinated with this idea of memes and spreading ideas almost like a virus, um, which, you know, was very ahead of its time in sort of predicting how social media was going to end up kind of ratcheting up that process by like a million percent, where now everything is about ideas spreading like viruses.
5: Which Which is also related to the fact that Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick was his last novel that he wrote and was a horrible failure and he died penniless and alone thinking nobody ever cared about his work and then his brother basically took it up as his life's mission to get Herman or maybe it wasn't his brother maybe it was his brother-in-law one of his family members i don't remember which one um it wasn't his brother he didn't have a brother cuz he was his his whole life basically he was like a a file clerk at the post office and his wife was kind of this like sort of affluent woman who kind of kept them afloat for the majority of his life after he came back from being a shipping merchant he was a sailor for a long time which is why his books prior to Moby Dick were about they're kind of these adventure novels about supposedly things he experienced whether that's true or not that's up for debate but you know apparently supposedly he was kidnapped by natives in you know far reaches of the world and he had to you know, get out of it and blah, 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 these kind of swashbuckling pulp adventures. I kind of have my doubts about his uh, fourth
2: novel, Blowjob Island.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it definitely, um, you know, it just wasn't, uh, (laughs) it just wasn't really... His first novel, though, Handy in the Bunk of a Boat.
2: Awkward Handy in a in a Boat. That one feels
5: like uh, that one pretty, feels real. pretty
2: authentic, yeah.
5: Yeah, that one feels real. But but the, all of these things are interrelated, right? Like the reason that it's Moby Dick is this idea that our culture is familiar with Moby Dick as this thing that is about revenge and this, you know, kind of perilous pursuit of a, an unflinching vision, which for him is a creative metaphor. But also it's about the story of, About making Moby Dick where Moby Dick was nothing and it it basically wasn't until this either literary agent or brother I don't remember a family member whoever the fuck it was um, took the novel and started selling it on college campuses and basically got it into rotation as something that was taught in schools. In, in, in college campuses, that then the book started to main, uh, gain a cultural consensus as like, oh, this is actually a pretty good book. Like, I think the original printing of Moby Dick, there was a thousand copies of it. Like, and he self-published it. He didn't even get a publisher. He self-published Moby Dick, which is so crazy when you think about it. Yeah. And the, and the, and the concept of that is like
2: simultaneously almost reassuring and then horrifying at the exact same time.
5: Yeah. It's 100% horrifying. It's 100% horrifying. Yeah.
2: Where you're just like, at the same time that you're like, oh man, like, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of cool to think that even after I'm dead, like some somehow randomly my work can be discovered and appreciated and become mega popular. And I'll just, my memory will live on and I'll just have no idea, but I just become this huge legendary figure. But then it's also just completely horrifying where it's like, the idea of like, oh, I just, I live my entire life and I never get to see the fucking end of it. I'm, I am I never get to see the big moment where I finally pays off and people give a
5: shit. Yeah, I mean, and for me, like, that's just not a, that's, it just won't happen because comic books, A, they don't, they're not embraced by wider culture and B, comic books don't have a second life in that way. Like, there's never a comic from 1910 that is, reevaluated today and accepted as a standard because the visual language of our culture has changed so much that it's just not possible like it's 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 a false premise whereas a novel can be reevaluated or a movie can be reevaluated but comics because of the long history of the medium and how it's been systemically fucking gutted like it just won't that just won't happen. Um, yeah, but who knows,
2: though? I mean, you, you never know. Like, you don't know what could happen in the future. Like, literally, like, there could be some weird thing in the future where, like, some global catastrophic event happens where, like, some big EMT thing goes off and, like, literally just, you know, like that show Revolution, like, where it just fries all of our power grids and we just, like, electricity just goes away. And nobody can, there's nobody can watch movies anymore, nobody can listen to music anymore. And then there's like this weird second revolution where people just start reading comics because it's like people read books but like you know comics are like it's almost like a movie maybe kind of like and, and then in that context, you become the fucking you become Herman Melville. You, like
5: well look if if we're living in the commandy but make it library kid future. Yeah, that sounds great, but I'm not going to be fucking holding my breath.
2: Well, you, but no, you will be holding your breath though, because you'll be dead. And like, that's the point is like, you'll be holding your breath for fucking ever. And then this crazy shit happens and you never know because you're dead.
5: Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want that. Thanks, though. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to try and like make some cool stuff now. But it's, but it's, it's,
2: it's a horrifying prospect because it's like, you just, you, that's, that would suck that you don't get to see that.
5: Yeah, I would much rather be a uh, I would much rather be somebody who has a little bit of success during their lifetime and is able to enjoy it than fucking Van Gogh or something.
2: Yeah. And and you know so Kojima, he sort of he had become sort of enveloped in that idea that, you know, oh, that's kind that's sort of the point. Like that's the that's the um the end point of this repetitive um iterative nature of creation is you're just trying to fill the world with as many ideas and get them to propagate as much as you can. So that, you know, when you die, your, your, your memory lives on in, in the, in the minds of people. Um, And then as time goes on, you can sort of see the, the uh, you can see the, the interplay between him and the games where you can see that philosophy slowly kind of start to become more, more and more cynical and sort of turn a little bit. And MGS2, Sons of Liberty, has a very optimistic sort of ending where it's kind of like that's the grand, that's the grand flourish of that game is like Raiden is like, oh fuck, like everything I thought was a lie. I'm not who I think I am and that my mission is, a to- is total bullshit and the Sons of Liberty are not real people. They're like AIs that have been like, they've like become sentient and you know they're they're based on these like long dead people that don't exist anymore but then sort of the 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 conclusion is like yeah but that doesn't matter because you know it's not about that it's not about whether or not your body is human or whether you're a fucking mostly robot it doesn't matter if you if like the thing you thought you were doing is a lie it's It's more about like, you know, your ideas and the things that you put out into the world and like those things will live forever. And then as the games go on, that idea just becomes more and more cynical to the point where it gets to the Phantom Pain, which is like this grand um, reversal where it's like, why do I care if my memory lives on in the world? What difference does it make? The whole planet is one day going to be like enveloped by the sun. So even if in this hypothetical reality reality. I become like a fucking global icon long after I'm dead and I'm thought of as like this grandfather of this, you know, artistic medium. And a thousand years from now, there's like a fucking religion based off of my games or whatever. At the end of all that process, the fucking planet is just going to die and humanity is going to become extinct and I will eventually be forgotten. So what? So why? What is the point of this? Why do I even why do I even want to do that? And so... It's sort of the the game just has this really just sort of cynical, nihilistic endpoint for this idea he's been exploring for decades, which is like, there's no point in anything. There's no point in seeking meaning. There's no point in trying to figure out like what it's all for. It's just chaos in the ether, and that's that's just where that game leaves off. But let's look at what was going on behind the scenes in the real world around this time. Konami's sales were rock solid throughout the 90s and early 2000s, but by the late 2000s with the global recession, their sales started to take a nosedive. From 2009 to 2015, their yearly net revenue for their digital entertainment division fell from 200 billion yen to less than 100 billion yen. However, in 2012, Konami saw a big boost in overall profits, specifically from mobile gaming. Namely, on a specific game, Konami's smash hit foray into mobile gaming titled Dragon Collection. In the following two years, though, the company experienced even bigger dips in profit, and some speculate that they were specifically as a result of MGS5's massive production budget. Major sea changes were just around the corner. On March 4th of 2015, Konami quietly released a new corporate restructuring document. This included a shuffling of corporate roles in the company, including a new president of Konami Digital Entertainment Division, Hideki Hayakawa. And who was he? He was the executive producer for Dragon Collection. This was clearly a large step in the direction of Konami's digital entertainment division putting a focus on mobile gaming. Another major change on this restructuring document, Kojima wasn't listed on it at all. He had been completely removed from Konami's lineup of top executives. The age of Konami's console-focused Kojima-centric dynasty was over. The document was so quietly released that nobody really noticed it though. At the same time, the official release date of MGS5 was also given as September 1st of 2015. In the announcement video, Kojima said this would be his final Metal Gear game, but nobody took it seriously because he literally says that every time. On March 16th of 2015, Kojima tweeted a cryptic screenshot from the game with the caption, Heading off. Then, on March 19th, some fans started to uncover the truth. In a post on the Kojima subreddit, they laid out evidence that pointed to the fact that Kojima had been ousted from Konami entirely. Key executives at Konami who were on Kojima's side had recently jumped ship in the corporate restructuring. All of the promotional and box art for MGS5 had been edited to remove a Hideo Kojima game from the title, and Kojima Studios was renamed Konami Los Angeles Studios. However, in response to the growing rumors, Konami made a public statement saying that Konami and Kojima would continue working on Metal Gear games together. And then a GameSpot insider report revealed that Konami had revised their contract with Kojima Studios, downgrading the entire Metal Gear team from employees of Konami to just contract workers. They took away the studio's access to company internet and phone lines and restricted them from promoting any of their games unless approved by Konami. With the cat out of the bag, Konami came forward and confirmed that Kojima would finish work on MGS5 and then would be parting ways with Konami in December of 2015 and they were looking to hire a new director for future Metal Gear Solid games. Along with this came the news that Silent Hills was also cancelled. After that, an interview was released with new President of Digital Entertainment Hideki Hayakawa, where he clarified that Konami's recent corporate restructuring was about launching a new mobile-first focus and also to draw clear distinction between executives and creative roles. The whole thing seemed to be a very clear, passive-aggressive snipe at auteur figures like Kojima needing to learn their roles and not get too big for their britches. And then a few months later, another report broke on Konami. Apparently, the company had taken a massive turn from the more free and creative environment where devs were allowed to explore their passion, to a stuffy, restrictive environment where devs had corporate looking over their shoulder and breathing down their necks. The report outlined that employees leaving the office for lunch were having their breaks monitored with time cards and the ones who stayed out too long would be publicly shamed by having their names announced over the company intercom system. Cameras were installed throughout the office to monitor employees, and any employees who were deemed troublesome or redundant were shifted over to performing medial labor in the office like working security jobs or cleaning staff, etc. This included company veterans who had worked on major titles. At one point, a former employee of Konami had announced on Facebook that they got a new job. Every Konami employee who liked the Facebook post was noted by someone at the company, and then they were relieved of their dev duties and moved to menial jobs.
9: <laughs>
2: I kind of, I, that's obviously really fucked up and shitty, but I kind of love this idea that, like, in the United States, like, the the the, the American version of this shitty, fucked up, Um, corporate bullshit is that they would all be fired. Like they would all just they would just round these people up and fucking kick them out, of you know, be like you're not a team player and kick them out of the company. But in Japan, it's like it's a worse punishment to be like, you are going to work this shitty menial job. That's like a lower status symbol for you. Like we're not going to fire you, but you're just going to be a janitor. On September 1st of 2015, MGS5 came out to huge critical and commercial success. It moved 3 million units and earned $179 on its first day. But according to financial analysts, they'd need to sell another 2 million units just to recoup total production costs. On October 19th of that year, a photo leaked to the media showing a farewell party for Kojima at Konami that happened on October 9th, even though he wasn't allegedly leaving until December. Konami released a statement claiming he was merely going on vacation. And I I don't know what this weird, like, insistence on, like, not wanting to acknowledge that this was happening. Like, throughout this whole thing, they're just like, No, no! Like, ignore all these clear signs that this is blatantly happening. Like, it's not happening. He's still here. He's just on vacation. It's it's like, it's weird that they're like so insistent on not acknowledging that this is going on. In December of 2015, MGS5 won Best Action Game at the Annual Game Awards. But instead of Kojima accepting the award, it was Big Boss voice actor Kiefer Sutherland. This obviously caused suspicion amongst fans. The host of the game awards that year, Jeff Keighley, appeared on camera directly after the award and announced that Kojima had been invited to accept the award, but was contractually obligated by Konami to not attend. On December 15th, Konami announced that their contract with Kojima was officially over. However, the very next day came some big news. Kojima publicly announced a partnership with Sony and a launch of his new independent development studio, Kojima Productions. At E3 2016, Kojima took the stage and made a grand announcement.
5: Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm back. Thank you. Uh, today, I bring something new uh, we, move, we, we made for you. And this is all uh, running in real time. Please enjoy.
2: So we're uh, tracking over. Um, Sand, a bunch of dead crustaceans, <laughs> somebody in the audience went, a bunch of crabs. Some uh, some handprints are appearing in the sand, as if uh, imprinted by some kind of invisible person. It's a uh, entirely nude man with like handprint, like marks all over his body, he's asleep on the sand, he's got a handcuff on one of his hands, he wakes up, it's Norman Reedus there's like a little fucking baby on the sand and he picks it up and just cradles it and just starts weeping openly the baby's gone disappeared his hands are covered in some kind of tar and then you see like black like tar handprints appearing on his legs and then climbing down onto the sand and walking away it's the baby who's like invisible cl- crawls oh towards a huge pile of dead fish norman reedus stands up he's got a big like cross-shaped scar on his stomach like something's been removed from his stomach he's looking out at this he's on a beach he's looking out at the ocean and up in the sky there's these like five sort of entities or objects just floating in the sky over the ocean so you know uh, obviously if you know if you're if you're even relatively familiar with Kojima or just mainstream video games this was a a, a, a reveal announcement for Death Stranding which was the first game uh, developed by his newly minted um, independent production studio, Kojima Productions. Are you uh, were you, were you familiar? Were you familiar with the game when it was coming out? Did you see any of this stuff? Were you like, oh, there's like some weird fucking game coming out by the guy who made Metal Gear? It's got like a CGI Norman Reedus in it, and he's like carries around a baby.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's about you know, I I. Uh, yeah th- I, all of that stuff i was aware of i was aware of the you know the feud between him and and konami um and i was like sure yeah that, that looks cool i guess uh, you know i'm not as much of a gamer now as i was when i was a kid just because of time um but the the real like sit up and take notice moment for me was and i don't actually know the character's name the the character with the skull mask and the hood um like when all of the footage Like when the game actually came out and all the footage of that character was just everywhere online, I was like, fuck, that character looks so cool. He's like Taskmaster. That shit looks fucking amazing.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of crazy characters in Death Stranding, both interesting characters characters like that. And then also just like Guillermo del Toro. There's just a CGI Guillermo del Toro and a CGI Mads Mikkelsen and that one actress from from uh, Mission Impossible. I feel bad that I like remember the two guy names and not the... Uh,
5: Rebecca something. Yeah.
2: But uh, I just, I'm just i just not familiar with her, really, other than just being in Mission Impossible. But uh, yeah, the, it, it's... And like we were talking about earlier with Jordan, it's like there's a character named Hartman and a fucking character named Die Hardman. Death Stranding was released on November 8th of 2019 and received generally positive reviews and was a commercial success. It also won a number of awards, including Best Game Direction and Best Score Music at the Game Awards 2019. In November 2019, talking to BBC Newsbeat as part of a documentary about Death Stranding, Kojima said in the future, Kojima Productions will start making films. If you can do one thing well, then you can do everything well. Which I find is a very interesting philosophy. Kojima went on to explain that he sees movies, TV shows, and games competing in the same space in the future, thanks to streaming technology, and that this will encourage new formats to emerge. I'm very interested in the new format of game that will appear on there, and that's what I want to take on, Kojima added. I don't know if you want to read this little blurb of what the plot of Death Stranding is.
5: The game is set in an apocalyptic United States, where a cataclysmic event known as the Death Stranding caused beach things, aka BTs, to begin roaming the Earth. BTs cause explosions known as void-outs when they consume the dead by necrosis and produce rain known as timefall that rapidly ages and deteriorates whatever it hits. These things damaged the country's infrastructure, leading to its remaining population to confine themselves in remote colonies known as not cities, which formed the remaining United Cities of America. These colonies have since relied on services known as bridges, whose porters brave the BTs, bandits, and terrorists to deliver supplies to the cities. Bridges also perform various governmental functions on behalf of the UCA. If they achieve a mental connection with a, in air quotes, bridge baby, a BB, a premature child reflecting a state between life and death, it is possible for a person to sense the presence of a BT. Porters carry a BB with them which is stored in a pod simulating a mother's womb. It's really fascinating because, you know, from
2: from despite what it is and what it sort of sounds like, it it's really it's really crazy that how sort of well it did commercially. Like it it sold well and then not only did it sell well but it reviewed very well and people really liked it. And so it was this really big commercial and critical success. Like it was not an example of um you know this you know this creator that is part of this institution and then they try to like get out on their own and they do this big um this this they they try to execute this large uh project and then it ends up just kind of failing and like crashing and burning like you know kojima announced this production company they worked on this game they put it out and it was a success it did really well and it was like oh shit like this partnership with sony did really well and we're gonna pay for you to make another big game and see how that does um And it's really, it's really crazy considering how fucking strange this game is. And it's not even just strange because of like the weird convoluted bullshit you just read. Like it, yes, it is true that this game has this like overly convoluted plot that has all these crazy details to it. And it's just, it's just like, it's just like really bizarre, but that's not even really the weirdest part about it because a lot of Kojima's games are weird and sort of like esoteric like that. The weirdest part about it is that this game is like these long convoluted cutscenes of this bizarre story, but then the actual game itself is literally just you transport items. Like the game is you walk, you're you're a fucking you're a
5: GrubHub delivery person
2: and you just deliver items to to people. That is what the game is. And so it ends up being this really bizarre thing where you have these like These like these like epic convoluted story elements delivered via these cutscenes, And then the actual gameplay is like, oh, I got to figure out how to like get this big backpack up this mountain. And then I got to get to this place and deliver this stuff. And the the gameplay loop of that is so bizarre to go back and forth between those two things. Kojima himself has said that he was inspired to make Death Stranding by observing that people had slowly isolated themselves from each other we become less and less connected in the real world as we're able to become more connected in the digital world. And yet, even there, we have become isolated as well. Social media divides us more than it brings us together. He wanted to create a game about a world in the wake of that isolation. And, uh, you know, it's it's, it's kind of crazy how, uh, how prescient the game was, considering that it came out late 2019. And the whole game is just basically about, like, you live in this world where everybody has sort of walled up in their own little, like, isolated areas. And, like... 80% of the world is just open, barren wasteland with no nobody there. It's just an empty world. And then there's just these little tiny cities dotted here and there that everyone just kind of stays within their little bubbles. And then the whole world economy is dependent on these delivery uh, people just going around and delivering goods, food, um, supplies, literally semen to, like, fucking repopulate the population and shit. And so you go around and you're delivering these items and then sometimes you just run into these BTs and you have to like fight them and your little baby that you carry around with you like detects them and um, it's really fucking weird. But the weirdest part about it is just sort of like the quiet sort of meditative aspect of what the actual gameplay loop is, which is like, I'm just kind of walking and figuring out how I can put a ladder here and get up this little hill and shit. Um, And then, you know, a few short months later, the world just literally became that
5: still is basically
2: and in this sense the gameplay loop of death stranding essentially revolves around the player traversing long stretches of mountainous regions carrying large caches of supplies to deliver to isolated communities it's essentially a delivery simulator game with long convoluted story-driven cutscenes and in many ways if mgs5 is the conclusion to kojima's metatextual reflection on identity and the futility of searching for meaning and leaving a mark on the world then this game is the perfect coda it's a quiet peaceful game of solemn meditation on a menial task that fulfills a utilitarian function. It's you procedurally finding your way through a terrain to deliver supplies to the people because it's just something somebody needs to do. The main character, Sam Porter Bridges played by Norman Reedus, isn't a hero. He's just a guy who is doing these tasks because it's his job. But what sounds like it could be painfully boring is made genuinely fun and engaging by the fact that you're left to figure out in what way you'll navigate this terrain. There's no tracker path and no specific way of doing anything. You've just got to figure out how to get from point A to point B on your own terms. Doing things for no reason and then moving on and doing them exactly the way you want to do them.
5: Yeah, I think there's some, this interesting idea, right? That like Phantom Pain is all about how you never really have an ending. You know, their endings are futile. The mission is pointless. Trying to find catharsis is, is just completely a fool's errand. And the thing he follows that up with is a is a game literally about being lost in the desert.
2: Yeah, and just like the idea that like you don't you're not seeking any kind of goal or endpoint. You're just like in real time, just living out every step at a time of like I'm just this this monastic repetitive task that you do because it's just what your life is. It's like
5: yeah, you're trying to yeah you're trying to survive.
2: Yeah, no longer seeking Shangri La or this ultimate catharsis like you said of of your life it's just like my job is just delivering this these packages and this is just what i do and it's just i procedurally go through this process every day and i don't really think about tomorrow um which is kind of represented in the fact that like in order to like get energy to do this you just like chug monsters like it's just like you go there's like sequences where you're just like in your little home the office or whatever and it's just like chug 3 monsters to fucking have the energy to go out and do this or whatever and you just like there's no there's no thought given to like oh like yeah if you if you chug like three monsters a day you're probably gonna die in like three years but in this game it's like there's it doesn't concern itself with that it's like eh, that doesn't matter like i'm just i'm here right now just doing this task over and over again because somebody i
5: mean even in the same way that it the game doesn't grapple with the fact that you're using a literal human child as a self-defense mechanism and it's never brought up of like, is this okay? What is the politic? Like, what are the political ramifications of this? Where do these children come from? What happens when they grow? Like do what happened? Yeah. Just, like, none of that's there.
2: Yeah. Which is really interesting. Cause like what Jordan was saying earlier about how Kojima just never really has handled women well, um, which is, you know, obviously that's, that's kind of a through line in a lot of like anime in Japanese video games um, where the, you know, there's just like a lot of like, sort of like, female exploitation in a lot of that media. Um, And, you know, Kojima's games are no different. Uh, And, you know, how Jordan was kind of saying like, oh, yeah, he handles women a lot better in this game than in some of the previous Metal Gear games. Um, But even in this game, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the weird ethical grayness and maybe slightly problematic nature of the fact that, you know, the whole thing about the, the, the BBs is their 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 babies harvested from coma patients, women that are in vegetative states? So these pregnant pregnant women that are in vegetative states, they're just on life support, they're brain dead, and they harvest these babies from them. And it's like,
5: yeah, it's just is like a perpetual rape machine.
2: Yeah, using these women as like a farm to harvest these these um, sort of weapons, basically, um, which has just really got these kind of fucked up connotations that the game never deals with. At all?
5: Yeah, it'd be one. It'd be one thing if it was fucked up, and the game was like, "Isn't this fucked up?" But the game's just like, "Yeah, this is what we get it from." Moving on. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let me ask you this, as kind of a coda or a in conclusion segment to this: Is there a lesson or a positive takeaway that can be learned from looking at the kind of arc of Hideo Kojima's creative life and his time spent in the Metal Gear Machine? and then leaving to do Death Stranding.
2: I think, there, I think there's a big takeaway for me at least, and uh, however this translates to others, however it translates to you, however, however it translates to listeners, um, however it translates to Rex and Sherman, however it translates to Charles Wexler Weller, um, however it translates to Hillsmer
5: if we can ever fucking find him. It won't, that fucking piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's learned a single lesson in his entire life other than the two episodes where he learned a lesson at the end.
2: Yeah, and then we just kind of, like, moved on from it, and that, that, that didn't really change the status quo at all. It just kind of went, went back to, like, the same as it was before, almost like a, an
5: episodic sitcom. Um, and also every lesson he's learned is basically the same lesson every time, where he's just like, yeah, I'm going to be slightly less of a shitty person. Eh, I guess I'll just be a shitty person. Yeah, he's like the Scully of assholes. <laughs> I'm a medical doctor. My medical doctorate is in being a dick.
2: Um, but there but for me, there's a there's a big takeaway and it's it's actually something that I've thought about a lot lately that really kind of this episode was almost like this working through it. Um, and it's this idea that, uh, you know, as creators, as people who want to make things, you know, we all have we all have different motivations. We all have different reasons for why we do what we do. We we talked about that a little bit with Jordan earlier. Yours is primarily motivated by cocaine. Yes, it's just uh, and uh, so I have to burn off the energy in some way. Um like I like I can't just I have to maintain my sort of like even keel monotone sort of like flat uh personality. I you know, I, you don't you don't want to see me on the sugar booger without, isn't it booger sugar? I mean sugar booger. Whatever it is, it's it's up my nose, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've 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 discussed. We've talked about this on the show before. This is like not a, a new thing to discuss But you know, I I think a lot of the reason why I like to make things is because you know, whenever I was uh whenever I was a kid, I I feel like I was sort of like in a similar way to Hideo Koji- Hideo Kojima was what what experienced this loneliness and this isolation it was less loneliness and it was more just isolation it wasn't like oh i wish x y z it was more of just like i don't feel like i belong anywhere i feel really isolated from people i feel like i just never can quite catch up with other people and feel like i'm part of any kind of group um and you know so i would you know turn to things as sort of like a, a salve for that you know uh watching movies and TV shows was almost like sort of my version of having those friendships. And um, so I think, you know, a lot of the reason why I I like to make things is because I, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I want, I just, I want to the idea of being able to make other people as happy as I felt on those nights when my family would get together and go to a video store and rent a movie and watch it together. And it was like a moment of peace and this sort of like chaotic kind of hectic kind of fucked up life that I was living. You know, it'd be great. It would would be just it would just be it would be such a universally fulfilling thing if I could give that to even one little kid. Um, one other person like pay that forward and create the stuff that served that role in somebody's life who was just somewhere experiencing the same feelings that I was feeling as a kid. And, I, and like I said, I think different people have different reasons for why they do it that are not that. But whether, regardless of what the reason is, regardless of if you do it for that reason or a different reason, I think the thing that you tend to experience is that you it never quite you never quite get there you never quite feel like oh i've done it like it, it always kind of feels like a little bit of a a dissatisfying experience your relationship between you your work and the people perceiving your work and maybe that's maybe that's a selfish thing to say maybe that's a arrogant thing maybe that's an arrogant thing to say maybe it's a kind of pompous thing to say but there tends to be at least to me this experience and this relationship with it where of Feeling like you you put all of this you put all this energy out and then you can never quite replenish it you can never quite refill it you're you're always at a little bit of a deficit every time you just can't quite put as much back in as you put out and you know that that's for a, a number of reasons you know you sh- you show things to people and they just kind of don't react the way that you hoped they would or expected that they might um, people don't seem to quite appreciate the things about it that you were hoping that they would. Um, and i think that through that process you kind of start to learn this universal truth that these these hopes and dreams of the hole that this was going to fill in your life are not true they they don't exist that you you you're never going to fill that hole that you thought that you were going to fill with these things This idea of like making things and having them actually recognized and, you know, reaching a large audience and having a fan base and, you know, become, you know, being recognized for your work and all these things. It's it's not bad and it's not disappointing by any means, but it's just not ever quite the thing that you imagined it would be. And I think that that's what is sort of being talked about a lot in this whole grand scope of these ideas is like. It's never quite what you're expecting it to be. The princess is always in another castle with these sort of creative endeavors. And then it slowly morphs into this repetitive, futile attempt at capturing that feeling that you always expected it to be, but it never quite um, lives up to. And so I think the big takeaway from that that I've been thinking about a lot recently is... That much in the same way that I feel like Kojima is sort of processing in these stories and these metatextual themes is like that you can't do it for those reasons. Do not drain yourself of energy expecting that other people will replenish you because it's never going to happen. And that when you do these things, you have to do them first and foremost for inner personal reasons. Do these things Simply because you want to do them. Don't do them expecting that other people are going to fill some hole in your life. Do them because you want a weird fucking decades long game franchise about the military industrial complex that features like convoluted plots of clones growing horns out of their heads. Do it because you just want that to exist and you think it's awesome. You know, make a make a you know a weird explainer podcast about really obscure topics that has this like long running narrative through line with all these crazy robot and like monster characters. Make that because you think it's cool and you want to do it and it's fun. Don't do it because you're like expecting the universe to give you something back. I think that's the take the takeaway for me.
5: I agree. I'm Dave Baker and I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com. Find some comics, pre-order some comics. Uh, if you want to pre-order the trade for Star Trek Seven's Reckoning, it's available, I believe, July 20th, I think it comes out. If you want to pre-order uh, my comic, Everyone is Tulip. You can. It comes out July or June 16th in comic book stores, June 29th in bookstores. stores. Uh, if you want to buy some of my older comics, which are uh, pretty cool if I say so myself, heydavebaker.com. Andrew, where can people find you on the
2: internet? You can find me engaging in a multi-year generational war campaign in which I am uh, setting up key chess pieces on a larger board to um, claim victory over all of my enemies here and abroad, only to then realize that the entire time I was not actually Andrew. I was another person that had only been uh, brainwashed into thinking that he was Andrew. Yeah, I was actually Dan Drew this entire time. And the real Andrew had fixed my speech impediment and brainwashed me into thinking that I was Andrew so that he could work behind the scenes, executing some larger master plan and using me as a decoy so that Charles Wexler Weller would be focusing on trying to kill me so that he could be working in the background, trying to destroy Charles Wexler Weller at a larger scale. Um, and you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my comic, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye. And uh, also, um, it's not quite something that is ready to announce, but I do have a little something coming down the pipeline that might be another thing that's available to be purchased on my website. Uh, it's not a thing yet, but I'm just giving a little teaser that uh, there might be something there might be something coming down the pipeline. That uh, might be of interest to you. That maybe I'll be announcing in the future.
5: And where can people buy merch?
2: Uh, and you can buy, you can buy deep cuts merch like T-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, fanny packs, and other types of items that can physically accept ink onto them to, you know, composite into some kind of image um, designs, such as our Tintin uh, pastiche or or uh, homage of Dave and I running against a spotlight. Or our design of uh, Bacon and Legs Miami Nights, which is me and Dave and Hillsmer sitting in a 1980s style uh, pink convertible car. Or our, um, this shirt is kayfabe design. Or our Davey Bakes and Papa Pricey morning show design on a t-shirt or any of these other items. You can get that at uh, deepcutspod.com. Click on the store and it'll take you to our official merch store. You can also go to bit.ly.com deepcutsmerch. Well, where to
5: now, Andrew, old pal? Back home so I can finish this, uh, grand epic revisiting of Choochie Woochie?
2: We should go to a drive-in. Who does that anymore? We should go to a drive-in theater.
8: Yeah, Space Drive-In. They've got those, right? Don't you fellas want to rescue your roommate?
2: Oh, yeah. We should do yeah. that.
3: All right. One short, slightly less cramped space pool
7: later!
5: Wow, this alien jungle is crazy looking.
7: All these animals look like they want to eat us.
5: Yeah, this is quintessential evil dude lair scenic design. I love it. Jeepers. I wonder if maybe we should
8: wait back in the Lincoln Junior, maybe? Really? You're not going to come?
2: What if there's like robotic ninjas that we need help with?
7: It has been a long time since I punched a ninja. I say we go. Look, over there. It's the entrance to a volcanic
5: secret base! How do you know that, friend unit Dave? Because it's a massive doorway with a spiked drawbridge and evil-looking gargoyles? Mm, Good point. Even on Alien Worlds, the bad guy aesthetic is
1: universal. Did you just make a pun? I think I might need recalibration.
3: One big creepy door opening later!
8: Wow, this place is amazing! It's like a hybrid of an old creepy castle, but in a volcano. It's like a... Castlano. Or a vassal. I don't know. That needs work, right? Hey!
7: Are those ninjas? No, I don't... Maybe?
5: No, no. Those definitely are not ninjas. Oh my god, they're mannequins, but they're armed to the teeth. What the fuck?
7: Oh man.
2: But they look like... Dave and me. Charles Wexler Weller must be training to murder us across the multiverse by killing these mannequins. Look down there. What is that? Do, 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 do. Just dressing Dave up in a wig. Do, 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 do.
0: Why? Yes, Dave, you do look stupid, and your haircut is dumb, and you do have bad taste in movies. No, Dave, Ricardo Montalban is the greatest, and nobody cares about that weirdo superhero card game. I will not play it with you. I'm doing Chad stuff. Hilsmer! Hilsmer!
8: Yo! Hilsmer! Yo, buddy, look! up here! It's us! Up here!
5: You tiny red fuck!
8: Huh? Uh, that was that was weird. Yeah, let's- let's
2: never talk about that again.
8: What? What are you two
0: idiots doing here? Why are you up on that catwalk?
3: We're here to rescue you!
0: Shut up! Charles Wexler Weller will be here any minute! Hilsmer! Yes, CWW? Get the oil can! The good one! My left
4: elbow is locking up again! You'd think for having such an amazing suit of armor that it would be easier to maintain it, like, keep looking
0: cool and stuff. What? What? Hillsman? Can you hear me? I'm down here in the pit with the robot ninjas of Andrew and Dave. Ah, have you finished installing those new combat protocols into the robotic ninja Andrew and Daves?
7: Robotic ninja Andrews and Daves?
0: Yes, I have. And just for good measure, robot ninjas of Andrew and Dave. I've also been equipping them with wigs and other accessories so you'll be prepared to fight the most up-to-date versions of them.
4: Dave has that hairdo now? Jesus, what a choice. He really does deserve to die. For crimes against fashion.
0: Yeah, it's like a mullet in sadness fucked and the baby was delivered stillborn. <laughs> <laughs> you, you like that one? You like, you like <laughs> that, that was one,
4: CWW? for you jokes that you. I'm <laughs> on
0: fire today. Literally, and figuratively. Like, I have just been laying in a pool of flames just knocking off rockets, which is what I call good jokes. I call them rockets. I call them firing off rockets. Yuzma, shut up! Sorry, I get, I get rambly when I'm nervous.
4: You know, Yuzma, when I kidnapped you in retaliation for Baron Puppets von Yuzabar's untimely demise, he was my special good boy. He was my good boy. I really did it. Purely out of spite. You see... It's lonely being such a genius. Being someone that everyone in the cosmos fears. It's like being famous, but people shit themselves because they're worried you're going to vaporize the families. And no matter how many times I say I only kill Andrews and Dates, no one believes me. But a small twinge in my heart has been with you, here in our own volcano mountain hideaway. In our own volcano mountain hideaway.
0: Yes, I agree. And I love that song. I've enjoyed our time very much. What
5: the fuck? Is Hillsmer a bad guy now? Is that how this cliffhanger is going to resolve? With Hillsmer having a heel turn? A a heels turn?
2: Does he even have heels? Isn't Hillsmer
5: (laughs)
1: always kind of a mm,
2: bad guy? Yeah, that's different. That's like a bad guy, but he's like, like
5: a bad guy. I am failing to see how
1: that isn't different.
5: I can't take this anymore. I can't- I can't watch this. I can't- HEY! HEY! Rex Weller! Give us back our weirdo red demon friend, you fuck! <gasps>
4: Intruders! Huzma! Launch the robotic ninjas!
8: Oh god! There's so many of them! So many robotic ninjas! Don't you worry. We'll take care of these nasties.
7: fantastic This is what I've been waiting for!
8: Laser arm.
7: Hey, that was my robotic ninja!
1: Laser arm, La- laser arm, laser arm, laser arm. Die, ninja, die, ninja, laser arm. Oh no, that one has Dave's face, and that one has and Oh no, so many conflicting feelings. Oh,
4: do you think you're the only one who has laser arm zero? Double laser arm! Double laser arm! And you get a double laser arm! And you get
2: a double laser arm! Oh shit, everybody knows that double laser arm cancels out regular laser arm?
5: We're so fucked! We're so fucked! Fuck you, C.W.W. You traveled the multiverse attacking alternate versions of us and now you've brainwashed our shitty red demon roommate! He might be an asshole, but he's our fucking
4: asshole! That's the difference between you and me, Dave. I don't think he's an asshole! I think he's a really nice, cool demon thing who has funny, weird opinions and maybe just slightly too interested in the Planet of the Apes movie. Stop
2: <tries> uh, 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 <laughs> there! Stop hitting me, there. No, what's the point of this? Stop
4: throwing ninja dummies at me, Dave! I hate you! You can't even show up to
3: a laser fight with your own laser! Look at me! Do I look like I carry around laser guns all the time? I'm a normal fucking person! Normal? Whoa! Your
4: tiny body and your weird, beady eyes get more and more annoying every time I see you. Dave, why? Why won't you stay dead?
2: Hillsmore, why are you helping him? I knew we shouldn't have come. This is the final straw, you two-foot-tall
5: piece of red shit. We totally should have canceled the rescue mission, like we wanted to in the first place.
1: Friend unit Dave, friend unit Andrew, what are you saying? We're
5: saying that we've talked about this and we don't know if we even want to save Hillsmer because dude's a fucking dick. Wow, well,
0: that's brutal. You don't want to save me, guys?
5: Why does everyone keep acting like we have this powerful connection to Hilsmer? Like, yeah, we've been on a few adventures with him and stuff, and he's kind of funny and he's cute, I guess, if you're into that kind of thing, but in case you haven't noticed, he's fucking awful. He treats us like shit, he ruins almost everything, and he does nothing but mooch off of us and shit on everything we do, and also, he shits on the couch! Not in a metaphorical way, like in a literal way, like he just will be sitting there next to you and you'll be like, oh, what was that smell? And he'll be like, oh, sorry, I didn't feel like getting up to go to the fucking toilet and he just fucking shits on the couch. He's been doing that here
4: too, in his defense.
2: Yeah, well, not to mention the fact that he's actively helping our arch nemesis destroy us in every dimension as we speak. Andrew, Dave, you
0: fucking dense dumbasses. I'm not helping him. What are you talking about? You're helping him explode mannequins based on our likenesses. You probably showed him the secret entrance to the mystery tree house for all we know. I'm not fucking helping him. I'm working against him. I'm sabotaging him. All these mannequins are weighted incorrectly. They're the wrong heights. This one has four arms, Andrew. Do you have four fucking arms? You mean you're actually doing something to help us for once? Yes, you fucking freeze-dried pontoon. You think I'm hanging out with cringe as a human being for funsies? Take that, robot ninja Dave. Take that, robot ninja Andrew.
8: Seeming like you're getting a little too into this, bud.
4: All of you, I'm going to murder your faces, you smelly little, uh, wait, Hillsmer, this Dave, he's he's lighter than the dummies I've been training with. Have you been secretly giving me the wrong data? Have you been working against me this
0: whole time? You kidnapped me, dude. You're like a multiversal terrorist and you like like the most normie movies ever. Like we watched Get Smart five times this week. The one with Steve Carell. What do you expect?
4: It is a very solid cinema
0: experience. You're just proving a point. What? Hillsborough, you betrayed me? For that,
4: you all, you all will perish. You all will die. I'll melt the entire universe to kill Dave and Andrew over and over and over again. And I'll take you down as well.
1: Charles Wexlerweller,
4: my friend Charles well it's me, Baron Puppers von Buesenbach. What? Baron? Baron Puppers von Buesenbach? Oh, he's P-V-P, Baron, who's my good boy? You're my good boy, you are the good boy. Look at me, yes, good boy, sit, yes, treat,
7: treat, 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 yes, you're such a good boy. Okay, literally, what is going on right now? Is that a fascist dog?
2: So basically, Charles Wexlorella's best friend got sucked into a pocket dimension inside of Zero's chest, but now he somehow conjured him out of it to talk to CWW. I don't really fully understand the science of it, but that's essentially what's going on right now.
7: Gotcha. Say less, fam. Well, uh,
1: you're bigger than this moment. You don't need this anger. I've come to a deeper serenity while inside of Zero's pocket dimension chest. We were misguided in our interdimensional, fascist theme park empire. We were so wrong. Friendship is the ultimate, not murder.
4: What? Well, uh, well, uh, we came through a lot together and we cured a lot of people. And it was so fun, wasn't it, good boy? Yes, it was. But I guess we were friends through it all. Huh? Friendship? really is the key.
2: Thank you, Baron, for releasing me. Dave, I think Baron is right. Sure, Hillsborough is a shitty roommate, and he always ruins everything, and he hid my EpiPen that one time, but he's still our friend, Dave. In the end, he always has our back, even if he has to covertly manufacture a bunch of sabotage robot ninja Andrew and Daves to long con foil the evil plan of our arch enemy.
5: Wait, where did you get that guitar?
2: He's a middle-aged single guy. He's got like five of them hanging on the wall.
5: When we're
9: apart, no one can move us. No one understands us. And when we start, I know we can choose to spin the deep cuts, and we do. And when others are so see-through, I know quit Oh my goodness Oh my gracious And they all together
7: Kicking time, but it's nice to have an amigo who's got yours. Ain't that right, Sher?
8: That's my pal.
7: Yeah, I guess so.
0: <laughs> the Epipin thing was pretty funny, you've gotta admit. But I'm on board with the friendship thing. Love you, dumbasses.
5: Well, I guess that solves everything, so I guess we can all go home, right? Oh, so you're going to release papas N- No, he's... He's a fascist, dude. He's That's fascist like morally guy. irresponsible. Yeah.
1: I will keep him in my pocket dimension for all eternity. Yeah, that, that feels like that
2: feels like the right move.
12: Agreed.
7: Wait, wait, wait! Why did everything just stop?
8: What's happening? Why is everyone not fighting? We're supposed to be fighting. I don't like not fighting. Charles Wexler Weller is just levitating in midair.
5: What is he doing? Why, are his eyes? They're they're glowing.
8: There's some freaky-deaky doo-doo going on here, here. Guys, I think we should go.
5: That sounds like probably not the worst idea you've ever had.
0: Alright, let's get the fuck out of here, guys. Wexler Weller, if you're in there, I just wanted you to know it wasn't all a lie. The pretending to enjoy Get Smart was, definitely. But I did enjoy our
1: Planet of the Apes marathons. We must uh, return to the ship. I believe Charles Wesley Weller's heart has been broken for a second time, which has triggered some sort of cosmic breakdown in the fabric of magical space-time. Oh
2: my god, Hillsmer betraying him has caused him to ascend to some other plane of existence? I
4: see you. I see all of you. I see all... Of your mistakes, your faults, and your victories. I understand your small lives, your petty grievances, your purest intentions. I See this now, as I am more. I have always been more. I just did not have access to it. You, with your tiny experiential platform linked inextricably to your bodies, I have no use for either of those things anymore.
0: Oh god, his armor is breaking away. There's just just light underneath. I can't help looking at his dick, guys. I just keep looking at his weird dick. This is so trippy. You guys looking at this, too? It's like the Bifrost mixed with a pee P-hole! I can't stop it!
2: Please let me stop looking at his dick! Stop it, Hillsmer! You're gonna go blind! Also, do you guys notice the weird irony that this kind of feels like a final boss in a Metal Gear Solid game? Anyone? No? I see now that my vengeful
4: path was a necessary one, for it brought me here. I see now that all of the pain and heartache and grudges served as a foundation for what I am truly meant to pursue. I see now the error of not just my path, but of your path. I see the error in attempting to even have a path. There's only one way
0: forward, and it involves the witnessing of everything. What kind of fucked up Kojima bullshit is that? What does that mean? I don't
5: know, but we're almost at the Lincoln Jr. Run faster. Fear coursing through your veins is the chemical reaction to my ascendancy. I do not
4: begrudge you this. I do not pity you. I do not feel anything about you because I know that there is more lurking out there
8: in the darkness. Computer, fire up the engines!
6: Engines fired up. Gonna go ahead and assume there was a silent... Let's get the fuck out of here in that request, even though you didn't specify.
5: Let's go! Look, out the back portal. The whole planet is turning into light. What's that? That
0: small silhouette. Is that CWW flying off into space on a mission of existential
2: oneness? I don't know. I'm glad we actually did come to rescue you, Hillsmer.
5: Yeah, there uh, there was a minute there where I was like... Life would be a hell of a lot simpler without that asshole. But you know what? It would be a hell of a lot less interesting. Is that
2: really the button we're going on for this? Thanks,
8: guys. I guess. Yeah. I'm glad we came, too. Now we know the Lincoln Jr. exists again, and we made some new friends.
7: Plus, we finally got our small transport business up and running. Plus, I got to punch all those robot Ninja Andrew and Dave's, which was just about the cat's pajamas. (laughs) Wait.
3: Wait. Who the fuck are you two? And freeze frame. Make sure to tune in next time, Junior Sleuths. Same Mystery Treehouse time, same Mystery Treehouse RSS feed. For the further globetrotting adventures of Andrew, Dave, and the rest of their mystery-solving crew. And who am I? Do not question such ephemera. I am but your humble narrator. Keep your focus squarely on the exploits of our dear boy detectives and their wholesome capers. Hmm, what is that light on the horizon? Ah, I see, he's returned to me. The beacon is lit, the line is tugging.
2: The bombastically meaningful futility of Hideo Kojima was written and edited by Andrew Price. Our guest was Jordan Morris. You can check out his new comic, Bubble, available anywhere you buy comics on July 13th of 2021. Andrew and Dave Rescue Hillsmer was written by Andrew and Dave and edited by Andrew. It featured Andrew, Dave, Hillsmer, Zero, Baron Puppers von Bülsenbark, Computer, Sherman, Rex, Charles Wexler Weller, and a mysterious narrator who seems to have some kind of weird ulterior motive. These people are being credited for no particular reason, but in a very specific order. Nikki Howard, Seth Garvin, Brandon Nebbett, Wes Robertson, and Mike Miller. You can check out Nikki Howard's sketch comedy on Facebook by searching her name or by going to facebook.com slash Howard. Oh My Goodness was written, performed, and produced by the Dead Boy Detectives, featuring Charles Wexlerweller, Hillsmer, and Rex, with drums performed by Jake Noggle, and sound mixing by Santiago Murillo-Segovia. Incidental music by D. Catalano appears courtesy of 5-7 Collective, you could find more of his music by searching on Spotify or any other music streaming platform, or by going to wikibodhours.bandcamp.com. Additional incidental music by Dad Beats. You could listen to his food debate podcast, Food Fight, anywhere you get your podcasts. And Pseudocide, who can be found on Facebook at P S E U D O C I D E. With spaces between each letter, because apparently Facebook doesn't like the use of the Latin stem side. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit BoyGeniusMedia.com or DeepCutsPod.com.
5: If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content
9: goodness, oh my gracious When we're together, we are so Sensatious In any other world, we might forget That time and space Moved apart when we met oh oh
7: oh 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 Man, that song is catchy